Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? How are you all coping with the lockdown? I know I ask this almost every show now, but I do hope you're all okay. It's definitely a test for everyone being stuck at home, only allowed our daily one government-approved hour of exercise. But I do hope you're all okay. I hope you're staying healthy and staying healthy in mind and body. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got a bonus interview with Jun Seth. I don't know if you all heard my previous interview with him and Krista Rose, but this is another monster, three hours and 20 minutes long. But before we get into that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So firstly, let's talk about Coin Tracker. And I caught up with Chandam recently. He told me that they've had a whole bunch of inquiries from people who listen to the show. So thank you for that. It's definitely an interesting sponsor to have. I had a few people write to me and say, why are you supporting a tax company? This is anti-Bitcoin. You are supporting the man. What the fuck are you doing, Pete? And I did have to think about it. I spoke to Chandan about it. I actually recorded a show with him, so you should probably check that out. But the reality is tax is a choice, but not paying it comes with consequences. I do pay my tax. I don't want to. Of course I don't want to, but I do pay my tax because I don't want to end up in jail. So if you are like me, if you're like accepting it and you do want to pay your tax, then definitely check out Cointracker. It makes it really easy to get through those complicated tax returns for Bitcoin. Filings work in the US, UK, Canada and Australia. And if you've got less than 200 transactions, it is free to use. If you have got more than 200 transactions, well get a 10% discount. You just have to use the link cointracker.io forward slash A forward slash WBD. And Cointracker is C-O-I-N-T-R-A-C-K-E-R dot I-O. Also, big shout out to my new sponsor, sportsbet.io. And today is the premiere What Bitcoin Did Poker Tournament hosted by sportsbet.io. They've got over a Bitcoin in prizes including bounties for taking out me or Dan Held or Luke Martin, even Leah Ward, although that'll be pretty easy because she's rubbish at poker. Now, if you want to register, you can find out more. It's up on my website. Just go to whatbitcoindid.com forward slash sports bet. It's on tonight. Looking forward to this. But also, if you want to check out sports bet, even though coronavirus has locked down lots of sports now, you can go on there and you can bet on Russian ping pong. Also, outside of that, they do have markets for eSports, they've got an eFIFA, they've also got their Bitcoin casino, and my favourite, the Poker Rooms. Loving that, guys. Anyway, amazing new sponsor to have. Big shout out, big thanks to the guys for sponsoring my podcast. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. Okay, before we get on to the show today as well, I just want to give another shout out. The Human Rights Foundation have organized COVIDCon, which is going to be on Monday and Tuesday next week. This is some amazing work by Alex Gladstein and the team there. Definitely worth checking out and registering at covidcon.com. Definitely something I'm going to be tuning in for. Loads of amazing speakers there. So nice work there, Alex. Okay, so onto the show. And like me, you're probably in a lockdown, probably getting super fucking bored of this shit. Well, I've got a massive show for you today. The other day, I was, uh, this is the morning, I was scanning through Twitter, lying in bed as I do most mornings, and there was a tweet from Brian Hoffman saying he was missing Bitcoin Uncensored and the way Junseth and DeRose used to cut through the bullshit. Uh, Junseth was there in the thread, so I pinged him and said, look, what are you up to, man? You want to make a show? And he said, yes. So without any planning, any prep, we hopped on and we recorded a three-hour monster. Well, it's over three years, actually. I think it's my longest show ever. 
We covered a lot in this. We got into coronavirus, the politics of the pandemic, as well as the economic impact. We also discussed libertarianism, something I've been wrestling with recently, modern art, and of course we get into Bitcoin narratives. Hold it together. I know some of the things in this might trigger some people, but look, the reality is this show isn't just about being a Bitcoin cheerleading service. Sometimes it's important to question things. I like to question narratives. I like to question libertarianism. I like to question some of the leading things around Bitcoin because I definitely think about it differently from other people. So I think it's important stuff to do. If you do have any questions about it, you can reach out to me. I will answer any email as long as you don't send me any bullshit. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, if you are really bored in the lockdown and you want to do something else, I do have some other shows on my Defiance podcast. That's defiance.news. And I've also been making films this year, so a couple of those are up there. Please do check those out. Also, would love your feedback. It'd be really interesting to hear back from you. Anyway, I hope you're all well and all safe, and I hope you enjoy the show. And again, if you want to reach out to me, it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. How you doing, man? How's, doing. How's, how's Florida? Good. It's good. Florida is boring right now because nobody's doing anything. So, uh, uh, yeah. But how is, uh, where are you again? Uh, Africa? Bedford, dude. Bedford. <laughs> Motherfuckers. Locked. So I've been locked down since, this is like my fifth or sixth. I can't even remember because when I, I went out to um, Turkey, to the Greek-Turkey border when it was kicking off there. And I was sick when I came back, <clears throat> like really sick. So my assumption was I, I had the virus. And in hindsight, I'm I'm pretty sure based on all the all the symptoms I had it because I was I was really sick for quite a long time, but but I had this real bad body ache. Um I couldn't Ooh. but I had a cough, but I couldn't tell if the cough was just because I'm like a vapor or because I had I, I was sick. I had the temperature. Um, by th- this body ache, like I never had, uh, and then oh, my—I've heard, heard that from a lot of people. I know a couple people that have had coronavirus now, and they have described the body ache as unreal, unlike yeah. anything they've ever had. Yeah, I've had flu body aches before, dude, but this this one really fucking sucked, like really, really? sucked. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it sounds. Was, it sounds like that's exactly what you had. Then you probably had coronavirus. You know what? And the funny thing is, I won't know. So I don't know if I'm immune. I don't know if I can spread it, whatever. But uh, yeah, it was pretty rough. Um, but yeah, so I've been locked down for ages. And, and lockdowns, I'm not even used to a lockdown because I'm used to traveling every two or three weeks, getting on a plane, going to another country. And then to be stuck at home for well, this is like, what, a fifth or sixth week sucks. And also, it's, it's, it's like really good for my kids. So they're loving it because they're used to me going away and they hate that. But um, yeah, so what are the rules? What are the state rules? Okay, so the state rules are uh, fairly loose. I, like, I think that they're trying to enforce a couple of things, um, but like, I, no one, no one cares. So, like, if they say don't go outside, people are going to go outside anyways. It doesn't really matter. Uh, they're not stopping anyone outside for doing it. You know, people are outside exercising and doing all sorts of things everywhere in Florida. It's it's almost as if it's not on lockdown, but people are like much more courteous right now, making sure that they're you know not getting themselves sick or not getting you sick. So, like, when I'm walking down a sidewalk and I see some someone up in front of me it seems like there's some unspoken rules now about like you know a person proceeding to the street and giving you like 20 feet of of room um so that's Mm. i mean honestly americans are really good about this kind of thing and we do it because i i think 
I think in other countries, they take a lot of latitude with regard to their ability to like lock things down. In America, we don't really have the ability to do that constitutionally. So, you know, the government kind of tries. And in a lot of liberal states, they're doing a little bit more draconian measures. Uh, you know, police arrested somebody in California the other day while kayaking alone in the ocean. <laughs> I know. That's ridiculous. I so they, that. Uh, someone else... Someone else got arrested while playing softball with his daughter alone in the park. Like, these are stupid things that are, I mean, they're probably going to uh, either sue and win some money when this is all over, or they're just going to, like, demand an apology from the police department. But, like, you can't do that in America. It's just not something that's really uh, to be done. There's actually a really interesting thing going on right now. I think it's in Utah with a, a guy named, I think, Amon Bundy. He's he's pretty famous because a few years ago he was uh, he stood up to the he stood up to the government in a land rights dispute, which he ultimately won in court, and the government actually killed one of his compadres. And hold he's on, got a was history. this the one where the yeah. where the militia came out and defended him? Yes, I remember that story. I fucking love that story. So, so he's 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 out he's at it again. He's he's saying that he's going to do an Easter service. Uh, government be damned. Is it Idaho? Maybe it's Idaho. And the government be damned. He's going to do an Easter service. He's going to try to get a thousand people there. Meanwhile, Idaho is spiking in terms of cases, COVID cases. <laughs> What's his name? So, Amon Bundy, I think Amon Bundy. Yeah. He's um, he's an interesting dude. He's like he's that full independent. I'm American. Leave me the fuck alone, guy. Right, dude. He I gotta I gotta say he is he seems to understand sort of the spirit of America. I mean, this is what I was I was thinking about it today. He's doing something really stupid, I think, but he's doing it for all the right reasons, and it's the most American thing you can do. He's doing it principled, uh, principled. I don't know how to say that. Principled. He's doing a principled move philosophically sound uh but but uh, stupid in practice <laughs> he's, he's gonna get a lot of people sick but at the same time I, I do have to say like america i mean i was i was looking at people tweeting yesterday because in wisconsin they had to vote and i was seeing people you know tweet about how um americans aren't gonna die just to go cast a ballot and i was like you know i think they're missing the point we we literally invented dying to go cast a ballot that was like the hmm. american way that's the entire thing that we did. We we had a war with a humongous, very well militiaed country, and we fought that war by arming all of our citizens and having them, you know, pick up guns and go into the battlefield untrained, and uh, and just you know overwhelmed Britain essentially. <laughs> well, I think so, you, know, you know, I I think I think we were kind of felt felt for you, and we thought you uh, we kind of gave you a chance, man. Yeah, we did better than you guys ever wanted to. So, <laughs> no, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting because. Uh, well, the, fuck you! You still got history. shit tea. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a jingoist. You know, someone called me that yesterday on Twitter. I was like, yeah, like Americans are jingoists. Like that's, that's fine. Um, the, it's, it is, it's interesting to me that the American spirit is sort of very alive and well. And in certain areas, in certain people, and then there's a whole group of the population that's kind of forgotten what the frontiers person is like. Um, there was there was that great uh, that great show. Who's that? Who's that Jewish comedian that does all like Borat? What's his name again? Oh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Sasha Baron Cohen. He did that. He did one thing where he got uh, some Israeli uh, lawmaker to talk about you know teaching like kindergartners to shoot guns. 
and it's uh, very that, funny. Yeah, he he had the, like the pedo detector. <laughs> yeah, that, that, he did. He does a bunch of these. I mean, they're just they're very funny bits. But then, like, you go back not so long ago. I think 1984 maybe was when Old Yeller came out, and Old Yellers I mean, it was probably sooner, like 70s probably. But there's a scene in it where the young kid takes up the gun. He's like 13 years old, and he has to shoot the dog. And you know, clearly, he's been trained in shooting guns. I mean. The, the mid there, there's a, a distinct sort of separation between the Middle West and, and the Middle States of America and these East Coast and West Coast city states and even the northern areas of them. So, like, you know, Northern California's farmland. But people don't realize that all of, like, the rest of America, they're out there shooting guns with their kids. <laughs> and to them, it's anathema. Listen, look, I find the U.S. You guys are You guys are barely allowed to, like, hold knives. So. Yeah, we're, we're, we're probably someone invented this new knife which has a blunt end uh, because of all the problems <laughs> we've got with knife crime in the UK. There's like we've invented a new knife with a blunt end, and I was like, is that really an like, invention? It, it, nobody had done a blunted ended knife to end knife crime before, but the, they failed to recognize that there's like and so they they invented a club. <laughs> <laughs> But they, I think they you failed would, to recognize it. It's like even if you ban guns in the U.S., how many how many are already out there? Like hundreds of millions. There's hundreds of million of knives. People, it's it's like people will find another way of killing each other. Well, a knife is just a piece of metal. Like the idea that you can't fabricate one. I mean, yeah. if you have a knife with a blunt end, just send it through a sharpener. And now you have a knife with a sharp end. Like that's that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's a piece of stainless steel, and you just need a little grinder that like grinds it down to a sharp point. Dude, there's guys in prison. Don't tell the like, terrorists so, that, though. The guys in prison are able to make a knife out of like a a, a razor and a and a and a and pen. A pen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's, just, it's not going to stop it. Well, I mean, knives knives are very interesting uh, devices from a physics perspective, right? Like it's it's a thing that is you know it, it's it's about like this this object that comes down to like a very very sharp point and the reason is is because you transfer the force of like hitting something with it and it cuts that's like that's what it is that's what cuts you is you know the force of your hand coming down is transferred to this sharp point so like if you if you make a, a knife with a blunt end it's not really a knife anymore and you know we have a lot of knives but in the u.s the thing that's really interesting i don't think people know how many guns we have in the United States, every single year, there's something like 16 million people that go hunting. 16 million people in the United States are able to shoot at long distances and have a rifle, right? 16 million. <laughs> I the think biggest it, standing army, I think, is China's, and I think they have 4 million people. Like, good luck. Have fun. <laughs> I, I think in the UK, we've got like seven lords who go out and hunt a fox twice a year. Yeah, and they're they're probably shitty at it, you know. They're, <laughs> although they're probably good at shooting from a horse. Yeah, I, actually, they've even banned that now. So they they probably just like shoot a dart with some dye in it and then let the fox go. Just just, just so you know, I don't know if you know this as a as a uh, what, what do you Englander U, a, UKer? I'm, well, they say British, but a, if, if you say British, that you, you're, you're including the Welsh and the Scottish in there a as Brit. well. Oh yeah, and you don't like them. Well, I mean, no, it's different. It's weird. I tell you what it is. Like I'm well, half they don't, Irish. They don't like they don't like you that much, right? <laughs> well, again, it's, it's 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 there's a mix, right? So like, what you've got is you've got Ireland, but which is split into 
the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. So my dad is Irish. He's from the Republic of Ireland, right? So I'm half Irish, so get on with them. They got on with us. But the Irish, the, it's surprisingly, the Irish hate us less than the Scottish. And we've really fucked the Irish over the years, right? I mean, we, we essentially stole a, a quarter of their country. The, and the Northern Ireland is really weird because they're the most British people in the in the, the, in Britain, right? They're more British than the okay. English. They they love the yeah. Queen. Well, so again, it's split into two because you've got the you've got the <laughs> uh, the Protestants who came over from Scotland, but you've also got then the um, you've got the Irish people who want a unified Ireland. So th- that's why they're at war. That's why they hate each other. That's why we had uh, years of Republicans against the the Queen itself. And uh, right. so they so there's still a lot of hatred there. But the the British people there are the most British people you'll find. They everyone hangs a flag outside of their house because they want to be being part of the UK, right? And then you've really? got... Uh, yeah, yeah, they absolutely... Like, but then you've got the Irish who fucking hate them. They want a united island. Look, I support a united island. I, You know, it should be one country. You've got the Welsh. No one really hates the Welsh, right? The Welsh And the Welsh don't really hate anyone. They're just kind of... Well, the, the Welsh just... I, I feel like the Welsh have just, like, uh, lived on a series of promises that were never kept in yeah. the UK. And they just kind of, like, survived and been okay with it, uh, but also a little disappointed. Like, I, I feel like being Welsh is just being disappointed all the time. There must be, like, a, a U.S. version. Is it, like, Hawaii, but without the weather? I don't think so, because I don't think Hawaii is disappointed at all. I think they really kind of like being part of the U.S. They're, like, happy about it. They're not really forgotten. It's, it's, I guess it'd be more like being Puerto Rico or Guam. No, I don't, I don't think the Welsh mind being part of... I don't think they mind being part of it. They've no, got I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so either, but it just it's kind of like the, like forgotten area i feel like yeah it's the scottish the scottish fucking hate us they hate oh us. yeah they hate well I, not all of them but a lot of them like you know when they had their vote for devolution it's suddenly well yeah we're probably better as part of the but the uk but <laughs> yeah they hate us but the gun thing the, the gun thing's a funny one you should bring up because you know i was very anti-guns and every time i would see a shooting in the u.s i'd like think this is fucking moronic then i kind of spent yeah. some time learning about it and understanding it and i think there's there's two sides to guns in the u.s there is the american side which is i'm an american I want to protect myself from overreach of the state. If it ever gets too far, we will set up our militia. Right. Blah blah blah. That's why I know about that militia, and which I, yes. I do think I do think it's a little. F- I can't ever see it happening, but I I love the concept behind it. And people go hunting. I, I, I kind of made friends with that uh, politician up in Wyoming, Tyler Lindholm. He's going to take me hunting, Very nice. which is kind of interesting. He, that was kind of cool. And then there's like this handful of absolutely crazy fucking nut jobs who somehow get a gun at some point and go and shoot a bunch of people who kind of ruin the fun for everyone else but i've kind of come to understand the guns in the u.s like i don't think you're ever going to get rid of them do i think someone needs a a, to own 25 ar-15s and bump stocks and all that crazy shit possibly not yeah possibly why not not? it's it's their prerogative like i mean here's the thing how many people have shot people with 15 ar-15s one guy one guy people with one maybe <laughs> Unless you believe the conspiracies, uh, no, I'm not going to. Do that. Someone tried to dig that up for me the other day, but but anyway. So the point being is, like, you, people have come back to me and they've said, "Well, you're anti-guns." And go, I say, you know what? In terms of the U.S., I get it now. I can't. I'm not, uh, and and I understand the 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 freedom side of it. But do you? If right. you ask me, do I want to change the laws in the U.K. so we suddenly have the same gun laws? Absolutely fucking not. I don't. I just don't. <laughs> Well, I think that I think most places are very are, are very afraid of guns, which is understandable. They're super scary objects. 
but I think people have to understand. I mean, gun culture is inculcated in the United States, into the blood of the citizens of the United States. I mean, uh-huh. everybody here has a gun. Everybody. I mean, not not literally everybody, but I think there's something like maybe 400 million guns in the U.S. More than people. So. It, more more guns than people, and you know, like it's uh, collecting guns for some is like you know collecting beanie babies for me. They want lots of different ones. Some of them are collectors. They have guns that are a hundred years old. Some of them are you know just they they like handguns. They like shotguns. They like an AR fifteen. Uh, they like other types of guns. I don't know. Maybe you know maybe they like the history of the nineteen eleven. I mean, guns are. I'm I'm a watch guy. I really like watches. Guns are like watches. They're mechanical, analog instruments that perform a function beautifully. And I mean, people like looking at them. And in addition to that, they have other functions, like you know, keeping your family safe. But I, I think most people just really love them. They're cool. They're really neat. I mean, in the way that I like watches. It's just an amazing instrument. The fact that like springs do this thing, uh, a bullet goes flying forward and then it ejects a shell and you know blah blah blah. It's just very. It's it's the neatest instrument that anyone has ever made. In the same way that like a mechanical watch is just one of the coolest things that has that, you know these tiny little gears all const- all all being run by this tiny little coiled spring that's like expanding and contracting to all in an effort to be as accurate to the second as possible. Meanwhile, we have this thing you could use, you know, called a quartz, and uh, you can send a vibration through it and basically have perfect time, but why would you do that when you can have a Rube Goldberg machine on your wrist? <laughs> the same thing. It's, it's just, it's a really neat, like, that's just Americans love guns, and there's, there's a lot of reasons, and I don't think you can necessarily export that culture. I think that, like, exporting gun culture to other countries would be a little bit like how America has tried to export sort of this, like, manifest destiny. Like, we want Iraq to be an American-style, like, republic. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> yeah, well, you, 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 can't, you can't export it because it's not, it isn't just the guns. The gun, the gun culture isn't just about guns. It's like baked in your constitution. No, it's about fighting. It's about fighting the British. Yeah. So no, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> it's it's just you can't have them. Uh, you don't understand them. No, but there is uh, there is a a weird sort of. Uh, I mean, America is about the principle of America, and I mean, uh, it's interesting because like anytime you and I have gotten together, we've talked like Bitcoin stuff. So this is like a, a very yeah, yeah. divergent subject, but it's it's frankly it's one of my favorite. Um, but the principle of America is is in fact very similar to like what a lot of the Bitcoiners bring. And it's this idea of libertarianist liberty. It's the idea of the individual responsible. The individual is responsible for the individual. So it's actually interesting in regard to this coronavirus panic because, you know, we have a lack of PPEs, you know, these personal protective equipment. Yeah, yeah. And in my world, I'm looking at it and everyone's looking to the federal government and trying to play, you know, blame Donald Trump for not, you know, preparing or something like that. Meanwhile, we're we're what Europe wanted to be. We have 50 states. They're sovereign, each of them. Uh, they are required to sort of acquiesce to the power of the federal government, which is, you know, the supreme authority. But the, the federal government is really supposed to exist only to, like, step in when local, you know, authority can't do it. So, for example, the federal government might step in in its role in coordinating sort of moving uh 
pri- you know, personal uh, protective equipment from one state to another, right? Where one state has too many, one state needs more, and kind of you know, maybe mobilizing uh, uh, Air Force, the Air Force to move that stuff. That might be the function of the federal government. But like in the process of this, you're asking yourself, in, in a world where you believe the individual is also sovereign in the way that the state is sovereign, why didn't the nurses and the doctors have their own supplies of PPEs? Why didn't the hospitals have their own supplies of PPE? Why didn't the state have its own supply of PPE? And why does the federal government have a lack supply? But that should be the, the backstop to all of those other sort of pro, like those other suppliers. All of those well, you know people kind of, who should have been responsible to themselves. Well, you know what comes through as somebody on the outside, and someone who's visited the states as as an outsider more as much as anyone. Like I've been over a hundred times now, right? What stands out to me is that the whole sovereign state doesn't seem to exist as much as you probably think it does in terms of your constitution and and uh, the way it should, because it, there is so much overreach from. The federal government right now, well, not even just now, it just always is interfering in other business, um, especially under like Trump being this big fucking power hungry guy. It doesn't appear. Do you, do you really believe that, that, by the way? But what? That Trump is a big power hungry guy? I mean, yeah, of course. It's, I mean, I think, I think it's, I think it's without doubt. Uh, I, I think it's, I that's think interesting. I, I don't. I don't agree. I mean, like that's it's it's. I, I I have this like very interesting relationship with the Donald Trump situation because in America, like, there's this like notion of the Trumpian Nazi rise and stuff like that. I don't really care that much about Donald Trump. I I wouldn't say I like him, but I I I do find sort of the rhetoric about him to be this sort of grave injustice that I do think threatens the fabric of our the fabric of our nation. I I don't. I don't think that he is, I think he's probably the least power-hungry president I've ever seen in my life. He doesn't seem to have any sort of understanding of like the idea of grabbing power. And in fact, if you look at this, the, the response in coronavirus, he's been very much about like trying not to escalate the takeover of rights by the government. And that's been very interesting yeah. to watch because I don't think that would have been the case with anybody else. No, there's, there's two, se- two separate things I would put in there. So, I think in some ways he is the most American president for a long time in that he has tried to take the U.S. out of wars, right? He isn't trying to force states to – I mean, he. they asked him the other day about, you know, some of the states don't have lockdowns. Will you – well, you force him. He didn't want to do it. And I think there were all Republican states as well, like seven of them. And I, I, like, I get that. He, he, he does seem to follow the principles of being like an American of the Constitution sometimes. But I also think he's desperate, more desperate than anyone to win a re-election and more desperate than anyone to, to point to his successes to the point where it, it's so transparent when you watch his press conferences, what he's trying to do, like beyond any any president I've ever seen trying to spin everything as I've done this perfectly. I'm tremendous. And I find that. Uh, well, I think I think that I think that here, here here's the thing. I think that like there's been some sort of lost in translation stuff here. And and I think in particular, there's a misunderstanding of sort of the uh, history of Donald Trump and what he comes from. And, you know, there's he comes from a, a group of like it's sort of a, a Christian a quasi-Christian group. He was raised in a church, and the the central ethos of that pastor was sort of this name it, claim it. If you say it, it will become true. And I know these people, <laughs> and I don't think that I don't think that you can understand Donald Trump without knowing that type of Christian. 
and I don't know that he is that he would you know I don't I wouldn't say that I would call him like a strong example of like a Christian man or anything like that I don't know maybe he is uh, but I do know that kind of I do know that sect of Christian and essentially what it is is you just don't like you don't say bad things because they'll happen it's this sort of like magical thinking type of Christianity and you know what it grows right up out of Christian <laughs> like, evangelicalism it is the secret but this is this is sort of the the Christian version of it and it, it, it precedes the secret by quite a bit in terms of its adoption it's something that comes out of um like i think the 50s probably as far back as the 50s and it's uh it's pervaded particularly like black christianity in america but that is what he is he's he's the easiest person in the world to get a soundbite from because all you have to do is accuse him or is ask him if he did something badly right and he will tell you he didn't he did it perfectly because he believes if he said if he says that he did it perfectly then it will turn into something he did perfectly so you know you look at the the call with ukraine you can go ahead and criticize whatever you want with it he will not divert from the response i had a perfect call with ukraine and if you ask him about the the, the inauguration crowd he will not divert from the fact that he had the biggest crowd ever in the history of humanity ever gathered in one spot ever and it's wrong it's objectively false, but I think that. I but think he's Donald fundamentally lying. Maybe I don't think that you're correct about that. I think that I think that you you believe that honesty is conveyed in true words, and I think that there is a meta honesty to Donald Trump that uh, maybe you're missing. And uh, I mean, this is going back to like the Bitcoin uncensored days. This was the entire thing. Sometimes the most honest thing you can do is tell a lie. And that's just objectively true. I mean, there are times like if the media is accusing him of something that they're accusing him of something false, um, you know, like oftentimes he's just responding to gotchas and he doesn't give a fuck about that. Like someone said it to me a couple months ago, Donald Trump, like he's regularly accused of being a bully. I don't think he's a bully. And this is someone else's thought, a friend of mine. And I think he's correct about this. I don't think of him as a bully. I think of him as a kid that was getting beat up on the playground and finally learned to stand up for himself. Yeah, maybe. Listen, the funny thing is, like, I'm, I'm not anti-Trump, right? And I, I, I tell you, it might be like, what is it? What's the split in the U.S. now? Is it like 60-40 favoring Trump? 50-50? Um, I don't know, but he's got a high favorability rating throughout this thing. Uh, you know, yeah. despite people thinking he failed and some not. I mean, like, it's he's people seem to think he's doing a pretty good job with the coronavirus crisis. But outside the U.S., he isn't. And I did, you know, I'm I'm generally apolitical in that I, I I don't mind criticizing someone if I think they deserve criticism. But I've tried to defend Trump. Trying to defend Trump here in the U.K. is really fucking hard. Like my brother, my brother was yelling at me at Christmas when I was defending him, and I was like, well, you know. Objectively speaking, I think he would well, have been a less dangerous. I say your brother's was, a pussy. He's a socialist. My brother's a socialist, and he's he would Whoa, vote for Bernie, okay. and he vote he would vote for Corbyn. But I, I was just saying, objectively speaking, he's a less dangerous president than Hillary Clinton would have been, and he's pro- objectively a less dangerous president than Barack Obama. And my brother was yelling at me, and then he stormed out of the roof, room and refused to talk to me. What well, my point I, I'm I trying to make is is that I, I I'm happy to defend him. I've criticized Trump on Twitter, not that I fucking matter, but I've criticized him, and people are like, "I'm unfollowing you. You're anti-Trump." It's like, no, I'm not. What I'm going to do is I'm going to criticize him when I think it's fair, and I'm going to credit him when I think it's due. And one of the most interesting things, like questions I often ask, I never get it. It's like, 
I really like to hear from Republicans when they're critical of Trump. And I really like to hear from Democrats when they credit Trump because they are probably the most honest opinions you'll ever get. Because when a, when, a, when a Democrat is crediting Trump, he's most almost certainly in that situation done something right. And when a Republican is criticizing him, he's almost certainly in that situation done something wrong. And that's trying to get that nuance right now. It's really fucking hard. I, I just don't think that that's actually even true, though, because, it, look, I, I think that there, there's there's a, there's not a lot of nuance to Trump. He's he's a buffoonish adult, and he's like an autistic kid who keeps stumbling, and he has, a, he has an obscenely good nose for doing the right thing in any given situation. I don't understand it. He seems to understand how the world is going to, like, lay out in front of him. Uh you know, and doesn't care what people think. I mean, like a good example is the ban on tr travel from China. Uh, he did that very early, and everyone told him that he was xenophobic. And now there's a lot of studies that com are coming out of Italy where they wanted to ban travel from China early on, but they were afraid to. The reason they didn't is because they were afraid of being accused of xenophobia. So Trump, th the beauty of Trump is that he doesn't give in to any of this bullshit. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's sort of the meta-honesty I'm talking about. He, he's long honesty, and uh, the truth part, like, he's the, the things he lies about, like, I don't really care about. What is what has he lied about of any import? That's the question I have for everybody. They have these lists of lies. I mean, the news media lies all day long. Oh, yeah. And the media agree. has completely destroyed the institution. There is no such thing as media anymore. It's done. Like, there's no news. They're just propaganda outlets. And the difference between Russia and the United States is that in Russia, you would say they're propaganda outlets and you'd get killed. In, in the U.S., just everybody knows it and nobody cares anymore. We're just like, oh, it's, we don't watch it. We cord cut. We watch YouTubers. Yeah, well, uh, under Ru and, under Russia, the the state media is supports the single authoritarian leader, whereas in the U.S., it tends to be more like you've got state media for each party. Yeah, and and I, it's it's fine. Like you, we know we all know that it's Fox News is the state media for the Republican Party, MSNBC, CNN, and every other outlet is a state party for the Democrats, and that's fine. Like it's totally okay. And then if you want like fair and balanced, you call your friend up and say, "What do you think about this?" And then you go through and you find like actual articles written. You find like things that are actually like you know fair and accurate and you just assess it for yourself the news well there is a different direction and says smell that over there but there is a difference in russia if you were citizen journalist and and uh, criticizing the state you might get might might get murdered whereas in the u.s you can get citizen journalists that aren't going to get murdered necessarily for you can, criticizing the state I mean, in and, the u.s there's recompense if you're if you're retaliated against by the state for that sort of thing. Like if if you if you're talking to the you know about the state and a cop comes and you know punches you in the face on video, I mean you're going to get a lot of money. Mm. Like the beauty of America is that like there there are at least still there is a way to seek redress from the courts. And that's something that America, you know, I have confidence still, and maybe it's a misguided confidence, maybe it's misplaced, but I have confidence that our court systems are, you know, separate. This is the beauty of the separate but equal sort of branches of government, right? The court system is separate from the executive. It is separate from the legislature. I mean, like yesterday, uh, there was a big decision by the Supreme Court that everyone was very angry about, and it was literally a decision about the separation of uh, the powers. 
That's literally what the decision was about. And that's the beauty of these courts is that there is separation among the powers here. And as long as not all of them are corrupted, we can, you know, we have the others to look at the other uh, individual branches and make sure that they don't become corrupted. And if they do, there are checks and balances. It's, it's beautiful. And, did, and it's worked so far. It might break apart at some point. Did you listen Maybe to Corona will do it. Did you listen to Eric Weinstein on Rogan this week? Uh, I did, yes. So they really, oh, actually, I, w- I was literally, I was literally just listening to it before you called. Brilliant. I am a few minutes in. I, I don't really love Eric Weinstein. I'm 37 you, minutes and 53 seconds into it. So, so ah, interesting. All right. So you won't be at the bit that really <laughs> interested me. So this is this is the only podcast I've listened to on this lockdown. I mean, podcasts are down. Mine are down like 20, 30 percent, right? Because media habits are changing. Everyone's on Netflix watching Tiger King. But I went. I've been running because we get our daily. Uh, government-approved exercise, right? So I've been running. Well, shout and, out to um, hidden. Sh- shout out to hidden forces. That's the one I've. That's been, in my opinion, uh, the most interesting throughout this entire like meltdown. Well, that's the right name for a podcast you want during a me- meltdown. Hidden D- forces. Demetrius. Demetrius Kafinas. He actually like mentioned. He's he's the one that engaged with you uh, when Chris and I were on that podcast uh, like a while ago. He said it was the most interesting podcast he'd heard about Bitcoin. Um, ah, interesting. So, like, he 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 listens to your show. So shout out to you, Demetrius. Thank you very much for making your content. I love it. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to Demetrius. But the so two two things there. You said you're not a fan of Weinstein. I wasn't. I've actually interviewed his brother about the whole what happened up at um, Evergreen College. Uh, interesting guy. And then I heard about this podcast, The Portal, and I listened to it, and I was a little bit like, ah, uh, I kind of struggled with it because it that this whole intellectual dark web thing uh, it's just a bit too elitist for me i'm a bit more like i need the unintellectual light web right i need the dumb guys version it's just a bit like uh and i just felt like well, it was forced attempt to be super fucking smart i ended up listening to the one with that vc guy who's the who's the vc guy like has the blood of virgin children injected in him uh, peter thiel yeah yeah i, I, I don't know to, oh, okay yeah and I was just like, oh, come on, man. This is the, <laughs> the bit. blood of virgin children. <laughs> so anyway, I was like, fuck well, that. I'm not that. I'm not. But, but bear with me. I, 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 I agree I, with you on that, by the way. But I wasn't that interested in it. And then when he was on the Rogan one, I was like, oh. And the thing is, I love Rogan, right? I think his show's fucking awesome. But I don't tend to listen to all the ones with comedians because, you know, with limited time, I prefer the, the ones that aren't comedians. And I saw Weinstein come up. I was like, go on, I'll check it out. And actually, I really liked this show, actually. And maybe it's because... Rogan's good at probing him to go into the right areas, right? Rather, a bit like you and uh, DeRose used to bounce off each other. He he probes him and gets him to go into the right areas, and then following that, I actually went back and listened to another one of Weinstein shows again. And again, it is look, it's a bit we would say wanky in the UK. It's a little bit wanky, but there's some there's interesting stuff in there. But the the really really interesting bit about the interview with Weinstein and Rogan is when he talked about mainstream media, and he's like, we need to stop referring to. Uh, MSN and Fox News as mainstream media. We need to call that legacy or traditional media because Joe, you're mainstream media. You're mainstream now. And the great thing, the the, the best thing about Rogan is he has created this channel and this podcast that can get millions, tens of millions listening, and he can say whatever the fuck he likes. He can go on and say this trans stuff is bullshit. These transport things are bullshit. Now, you're not going to get away with that in, in the liberal left, but he can just go out and fucking say it. And at the same time, he can then go, he can actually be all about like guns and traditional American things. He can be left and he can be right, and he doesn't give a fuck. And I think in some ways that's because he's got to that point now where he knows 
he's so big, he's never he's never going to run out of sponsors, so he's financially secure, so he can just say whatever the fuck he wants. Whereas all these l- traditional legacy media businesses, they're all worried about losing sponsors and hitting their, their targets, so they're fucked. They can't be honest. Right. And the smaller kind of podcast guys, I mean, actually, it kind of goes back to, we can actually tie into what Brian Hoffman was saying about this. But the the smaller guys have always got to like worry about their sponsors. Like even for me, right this year, I think at least five occasions people have contacted Kraken and said, "Why are you sponsoring him? Why are you sponsoring him?" Because I've got into arguments or disagreements with people. They're trying to stop. They're trying to get Jesse to uh, uh, not sponsor me. And that's not all the times where people have just tagged Kraken or Blockfire said, why are you sponsoring me? Or Jesse, why are you sponsoring It's like, it's people actually going out of their way. There was one dude who was like on a Telegram group who basically initiated a campaign where people were tagging me all day and tagging Kraken say, if you continue to sponsor it, we won't use your platform. Uh, and there's other times where people have written to them, like there's there's a tax on it. And, and that's only because I've got in fights and disagree with people. And, and that goes back to what Brian Hoffman was saying. Look, there is a risk. You know, this is my income and this is my business. And if I if I go on the full attack on something, if I think this is bullshit, I'm going to challenge it. I know it. I know on certain things, I risk my sponsorships, and that's a difficult thing. Sure, I'll do it anyway. I don't give a fuck. Right. So I mean, the the thing with Rogan is Rogan is independently wealthy. I mean, he's had a full yeah. film career. He's the spokesperson for the uh, UFC. And and then he has his podcast. And I, I don't know how much you know about the history of Rogan. When he started the podcast, he couldn't find sponsors. So he, he if you go back to his early episodes, his, his first and only sponsor is the Fleshlight for <laughs> like <laughs> for like 100 episodes. He just this, he's, he's kicking the flesh, Fleshlight uh, on every show. And, uh, you know, it took him a long time to become sort of this mainstream sort of guy. And he's got a history. You know, people can go back and listen. And nobody gives any shits about the things he says. He has so many times he's dropped the N-word. And, you know, you can't really do anything to him. He's kryptonite because he doesn't care. You're right about that. He, he has, I mean, he'll, he'll say it. He has fuck you money. And that's a really wonderful place to be in, uh, in, in that atmosphere. And I think, I mean... Why I find Weinstein to be an insufferable prick, and the reason is is because Weinstein has this belief that he is the smartest person on earth. Uh, he believes that he and his brother have come up with like multiple Nobel winning ideas. I mean, I came up with a Nobel Prize winning idea in high school. I figured out how to synthesize graphite or uh, graphene, and uh, it was just a, a joke that I told my teacher, and it incidentally ended up being the way that graphene was actually synthesized, and uh, the team that did it won the Nobel Prize. Okay. Well, it, I, I didn't share it with them, and they came to it independently, and uh, and Weinstein has all this butthurt about like many things in his life that he has done that have gone on to win Nobel Prizes or something like that, or he, he's the only one who came up with some equation, or he's the only one who understands how CPI uh, or how like uh, inflation should actually be calculated or something like that. He's got all of these beliefs about himself being a super genius, and like I, I think of my discovery of graphene in a similar way. It was me thinking through something uh, and and joking about how, you know, I, I remember I, I posited to my science teacher that if you take a scotch tape and just peel it off a block of graphite, that's probably graphene because of, like, the static electricity of tape. That was just a thought I had in my head. Incidentally, apparently that's how you synthesize graphene. Dude. Okay. Um, it, it's, but, but, but I didn't know 
that I had done it right. I didn't know that, and I'm sure other kids had done the same type of thing that I had. You know, because it's cool, like taking tape and putting it on a graphite block and doing that. You know, I'm sure millions of people did that. And uh, it took a long time, and it took someone to sit down and actually do math and be like, oh, fuck, this is graphene, and, like, stick it in a microscope and look at it and, like, actually know that that's what they were looking at. So, you know, there's there's there are these people. I think that he has another story about a time that Brett was had some idea and uh, some woman took his idea and actually did the actual hard work and you know went and won uh, some big prize and and maybe it was a Nobel Prize in some science, um, but that Brett that Brett didn't get it and I he's he's just filled with this sort of rage of not being recognized for his super genius constantly and that was the same thing with the dark web the intellectual dark web when they named it I, I said to Sean who's on uh, one of the guys on my show I said now that they've named it they have a club they have their own hierarchy and they're gonna have to like figure out who they're gonna kick out of it from time to time and it suddenly becomes a very controversial club because that's censorship and that's the whole thing that they're trying to fight against so like there's all sorts of like caveats that come up with creation of a named organization when you guys are supposed to be sort of the no name all accepting anything is acceptable to talk about kind of group and you know there's just a list of things that you know Brett Weinstein for example will not or uh, Eric Weinstein won't actually talk about and that's fine but that's not really uh, in the spirit of the thing that they created in the first place yeah, it's not a club I would want to be in. The intellectual dark web. It just it's sounds a dumb club. It just sounds so fucking pompous. But I, but I, I do, I do like Eric's stuff at the moment. I've got to say, I've come back, and then if you can filter through it, just forget all the bullshit. I actually filter through it. And there's, he's there's not always stuff. He's not wrong. He's just a dick. Like it's like Trump. Trump isn't wrong. He's just a dick. The difference is I enjoy watching Trump because like Trump Trump is like it's like watching I don't know like Randy Man Savage or something like that in the ring doing his thing. He's just a showman. He's wonderful to watch. It's entertaining. He's he's excellent at the thing he's doing. He's good at going to combat with people who are fighting with him. Um, Trump is just a, a you know a, a prick who thinks he's a super genius. And uh, the uh, the difference is that he's he feels like he's in a position to exercise his super genius whereas brett has this like inferiority complex where he's just never been understood he's never been recognized for his super geniusness but that said i occasionally listen to him uh he's he's introduced some good things back to the podcast thing there's a great podcast he didn't enter he i i was introduced to on the portal uh called the red scare and i didn't mean to listen to it but it was one of those things where i was like sitting there on youtube and it just played the next video and it ended up being this uh this great interview with this young woman who does a podcast that reminds me of like the female version of Bitcoin Uncensored, uh, where they just sit around and kind of lament the state of the world. It's just, it's fucking great. But back to the original point, right? That this this thing that actually Joe Rogan is mainstream media. Like what defines mainstream media? It's, it's wrong to say Fox News and MSN is mainstream media. It's just traditional. Like the audience he's getting in and the way he can navigate the bullshit and be honest, that is mainstream now. And I think we're going to see more of that. And I think also post-coronavirus world, well, there's, there's like two. There's post-lockdown, pre-vaccine, and then post-lockdown, post-vaccine. But in that world, there's going to be so much distrust of the media, so much distrust of authority, that I think it's going to be a, another opportunity for more citizen journalist stuff come up. And it's important to separate the two, though. I agree. Because like, there is, there's stuff like Rogan where he's going out and – He's like being super honest and at times apolitical. Yes, he's a liberal, but you know, he'll happily 
he'll happily say if Trump's done something right. And then you've got this other kind of new wave of stuff coming up. Like, do you know Grey Zone? No. Uh, the Grey Zone. So that's Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton. So they're like anti... Well, I know those names. Oh, you know the names. So they're like American anti-US imperialism kind of people, but they they provide a shield for the likes of Maduro and Assad. So uh, as the like US rhetoric for Venezuela is growing right now they're going on about well this is going to be u.s imperialism again you know the the, this will be a a war against a sovereign nation with an elected leader and it's like well hold on a fucking second you can't sit there and just criticize the u.s and be imperialist and then provide a a shield for maduro like he's some uh, honestly elected leader like he's a fucking narco terrorist let's not let's not let's not say what he isn't he is a dictator and narco terrorist but they're kind of they're doing the they're doing the anti-fox news right they're doing they're taking um what was it what was that fox news guys what was his name uh, Roger Ailes. They're taking the. They're doing like the anti-Roger Ailes thing. They're going right. Nuance is dead. Nuance doesn't get you an audience. Nuance doesn't make you money. So what can we do? Let's 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 go the full fucking hate you U.S. conspiracy. I'll live here, but let's go full hate on them and uh, offer a kind of shielded sympathy for Assad and, and Maduro, which itself is <laughs> utter bullshit and itself is fucking dangerous. Well, well, Peter, my question for you, what is the sentiment of English people toward the media? Is there a distrust of the institution? Because I, I get the sense that uh, Brits don't actually distrust media at all. Not that much. Not, not like, well, again, you, you've, got to, you've got to ask the question. You say, is there distrust? Uh, if there's so much distrust well, to in what U.S. media, why, why does Fox News get such high ratings? Why does MSNBC, why do people follow these sources? Uh, well, there's, there's huge amounts of distrust and then there's, there's factions. I mean, there's something like 25% of people who believe, uh, that 9-11 was a great government conspiracy. And I think that's, again, the nature of the United States. If you have a conspiracy out there, something like 25% of people probably believe it. That's, that's the thing. Like Twitter amplifies those voices. So, you know, uh, I think, I think the media here tends to peddle in conspiracy. It tends to peddle in propaganda, uh, probably pushed out by Russian and Chinese sources. And a lot of it, you know, people say it's sort of this clickbait world where they offer clickbaity articles and clickbaity content. I don't actually think that's necessarily what's going on because the media has always done uh, this sort of very bad job of figuring out exactly what it is that they should and can monetize. If it was just about clickbait stuff, then we'd have like, you know, 17 Fox News because Fox News tends to have a better sticky demographic. And, uh, you know, is everybody really, you know, the people that watch Fox News are pretty loyal followers of it. Whereas I think, like, you look at Rachel Maddow's numbers, the instant the Russia conspiracy was proven false, she just tanked in the ratings. It wasn't like people were there for any other reason than they were literally thinking we had a Manchurian candidate in the White House. I, I don't mind that Tucker Carlson. He's kind of interesting. Tucker Carlson's going to be president of the United States. I mean, uh, this is, again, a discussion I had with someone today. Uh, Tucker Carlson is literally sort of the meme of that Northeastern uh, kid that everyone knew about, that like he, he has 
enormous amounts of money. You don't really understand where it is. He can do whatever he wants for whatever amount of time because his family just has money. It's not like he has worked really hard, and he's become the king of that type of guy. Uh, I think that that is a, a good description of Tucker. I was told that this morning, and I just thought it was so funny. And he, you know, he literally wears a bow tie, and he's fucking articulate. And you know, it's it's interesting. Tucker really could have been anything he wanted. He could have been pro-Trump, or he could have been anti-Trump, and he would have been probably the most reasonable anti-Trump person you've ever heard. And incidentally, he has taken sort of a middle road. He criticizes Trump when he needs to. I think that Tucker really loves America. Uh, there's a lot of stories now where Trump has become so distrustful of the news. And I think this is the thing: like, it's dangerous for our president to be distrustful of the news. And I don't think the news has grasped the fact that it's their fault. America is distrustful. The president is distrustful. So it took Tucker Carlson to get into his car, drive to Mar-a-Lago, and tell President Trump that this was an important thing. This virus was something important that he had to worry about. And that was when Trump really stepped into action. It's, it's fascinating. Tucker's like... <coughs> Trump's Jiminy Cricket, in a sense. <laughs> I liked, I liked of, of all the kind of right-wing media in, in the U.S., Tucker's the one I, I, I trust the most to, well, to He's the only like. smart one. He's the only smart one. I he's mean, also he's, the only smart leftist. He's, 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 like, he's very much a, a nationalist. Um, he's a nationalist who is very pro-America, uh, but he's, he, he advocates things that like, people would consider left-wing, and he advocates things that people would consider right-wing. He's, he's kind of your quintessential centrist, to be honest. Mm, I, I like him. So back to the UK. So, yeah, people just kind of trust the news. And it's funny, there's more hate towards the BBC outside of the UK than in the UK. <laughs> Like everyone, everyone outside of the UK is like, this is fucking state media. You've got a state media in the UK. Everyone's yeah. like, mm, I think I trust. We the love BBC. our state media. Well, I think people trust the BBC more than they trust any other news source. But there's such a such a strong, and that's not to say the BBC does not fuck up. Of course it does. But there is such a lens on them being kind of a, a a state media that actually they do an awful lot of work to prove their uh, uh, integrity. They will. They they even do uh, like open sessions of criticisms have come in and how they've dealt with it. It is actually interesting. Um, I, I mean, I take their stuff with a pinch of salt, as I take Sky News with a pinch of salt, as I take all news with a pinch of salt. I mean, I think the best thing you can do with news is is look for the facts and ignore the opinions. Like, just say what are the facts coming through here. If anything sounds a bit wild, you can kind of debunk it. But everyone here is a bit more trusting of the media because yeah. everyone here is a bit more trusting of the state. Uh, that's why right. I got into like a few disagreements through this lockdown with people because I've been kind of going on this like libertarian journey, learning about libertarianism, but I've never kind of come out and said, I'm a libertarian. And I, the reason I haven't is that I've never got to the point where I've fully rationalized a libertarian society and in my head believing that one, it will function in a in a better way than like what we have now. Now, look, there's multiple measures. Of course, under a, in a libertarian society, you will probably have less global wars. You won't have as many uh, kind of these big, huge invasions where a flotilla of ships heads to Iraq to to take down Baghdad. Right? I get that one. Yes, and yes, objectively, you have more freedoms. But does it create a more cohesive society? And I'd never got fully there. I almost, I almost kind of like the idea of weaning yourself off the state and say, what works, what doesn't work? Okay, 
it doesn't work having a completely open and free market because you do get mon monopoly abuses. Okay, that, that's perhaps something that you need to look at. Again, I don't know. Yeah, if you don't have uh, some form of police force, you do get warlords. Uh, and and th I know there's all these written, uh, like Rothbardian explanations on the Mises Institute about what will actually happen. They are just theories, though. They are still just theories till it happens. So when this coronavirus kicked off, I was like, right, look, I don't trust the state. I don't trust my government. I'm still there. But at the same time, like right now, do I think that a no state response, if we were in a libertarian society, that this would have been a better response to coronavirus? Do I think that we would have uh, – do, do I think the response would have been better? Do I think less people would have died? Do I think that uh, independent free market companies wouldn't have still made mistakes or people still would have made bad judgment calls? Look, the WHO have come in for a lot of criticism and deserve it, right? But at the same time, without a WHO, would we have heard of it as earlier on? I don't know. And, and I'm not defending the WHO. I'm just saying, how, how would the spread of information that happened in a libertarian society? And would there have been a trusted source within that that would have made a bigger mistake? Would it have taken a longer time to get to the truth and therefore the disease has spread further? I think these are all things you, uh, that are, are fair to debate. And I said, I, I think right now we need centralised planning. I've watched the UK response. I've watched the army and the, the work along with the government and build all these hospitals at a second's notice do i know that would happen the same in an open free market i don't know and actually right now i'm kind of like back the nhs save lives let's just let's like get through this shit but and having that opinion now i'm i'm a fucking statist and the status is an insult <laughs> and it's not a debate well i'm a heavy critic of libertarians i think that the philosophy at its core is absolutely stupid and has literally no merit. It's just dumb. It doesn't acknowledge any sort of uh, role of the state. And I mean, uh, like a Paul Stortz in Bitcoin would say that there's a distinguishment between you know modern libertarianism and maybe like the Milton Friedman libertarianism. And I, I can acknowledge that. But like I'm I'm attacking modern libertarianism. It's a stupid anarchic belief that the individual can exist in a world filled with externalities and that you yourself can uh, manage those externalities with absolutely no you know no issue um, I have this I have these weird sort of arguments with libertarians I mean in this case with like covid you'd be asking well in a libertarian society why can't you know I participate in a wet market where we eat pangolins and bats why not it's my prerogative. And then the libertarians would say, well, by doing that, you're hurting me. And that goes against the, uh, what do they call it? The, the non-aggression principle. principle. Yeah. The non-aggression principle. And I'm like, well, maybe, but you wouldn't know. You wouldn't have a coordinated understanding. You wouldn't have the scientists trying to figure out necessarily where this thing came from. Or maybe you would. But what would you do? Like, you're, you're going to go to China and tell them to stop having wet markets? You're going to, like, go stop that practice? And the other thing is, like, libertarians, they, they end up in this weird world. Uh, the world they envision is one filled with, like, these Romanesque leaders of uh, factional armies that are just roving, you know, roving the land. And all libertarians view themselves as people who have emerged from an economic collapse who are now the wealthy elites because they hoarded gold. And so they can afford to pay armies and feed armies of people to defend their shit. And it's so stupid. It's so dumb. So I guess you're not a fan of the uh, citadels. 
what is that? Is that the uh, like those locations that you you go and live in a libertarian like uh, compound? Utopia? It, well, sometimes I, it, yeah, I'm okay. You know, I, I was I was raised on a commune. I don't have like uh, I think I think what's cool about a free society like America is that you can live in enclaves of whatever you want. So if you like communism, uh, let the government do its thing and go live in a communist enclave. Share everything. That's fine. Uh, if you love libertarianism, go live in a libertarian enclave where you all practice the nap and kick people out who don't. Um, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. I think if you want to live a certain way or by certain principles, I mean we have the pork. Pork fest uh, every year that you can go and, and exchange your weird gold ingots for dollars, and that's totally fine. I think that's a really cool little thing, uh, but it's it's just a bunch of people larping. When it comes down to it, you need government for certain externality management. I mean, a good example is market downturns. You need government to be managing that. Libertarians hate central banks. It's cute. Um, I, I was I always say this to everybody: is is it more free? Uh, for the government to give you a denominated amount of fiat, which you have the freedom to then buy gold with and hoard gold and keep your money in gold, or is it more free for the government to hoard gold and give you a thing that represents the gold that they're holding? Which one's more free? Because I think the fiat is actually more free, and libertarians have a real hard time with that because they want their dollar backed in gold. And if you actually look at the history of gold, that's actually pretty common. There's a great book called The United uh, One Nation Under Gold, and it, it, it sort of takes you through the history of this. And one of the things it talks about is the fact that, like, Basically, all of the lobbying about what metal the, was going to be backing the currency was done by people who held either silver or gold, right? So if you held silver, you wanted the United States to hoard all the silver. And if you held gold, you wanted the United States to hoard all the gold. And so it was like these sort of uh, these, these self-interested parties that were begging for a backed dollar. And the backed dollar doesn't work in the first place. And if you really want a dollar backed in gold, that's totally fine. Go buy gold. You can hold the physical gold. Or if you really, really want a dollar backed in gold, go buy, if you want the, the, like the note that says that your dollar is backed in gold, go buy a IAU as an ETF. You can do that. The beautiful thing about American markets is that you have the freedom to hold whatever kind of money you want. And I think libertarians haven't quite grasped the fact that they can hold any kind of money in like municipal debt or in debt from companies because literally what money comes down to is an IOU. It's someone who creates a debt initially. In this case, the United States sells debt, right? Someone buys the debt from the United States. And then from that purchase, we create these little certificates that say this is uh, this is a, a debt that somebody bought so that we could give you this fiat and with that you can do whatever you want and that's the beauty of a free society go hold your money in gold and libertarians haven't really grasped the concept of what freedom really means they are allowed to hold gold if they really want gold backing go hold gold yeah but it's if more you than want that the state but what but it's not though like all of their all of their complaints tend to be these these complaints about things they don't actually suffer from like most libertarians they'll talk about how inflation is a huge problem my question to all of them is how much cash do you carry in your bank account and all of them say well why would i carry cash in my bank account i was like well, what do you where do you put it well i buy gold with it and i buy stocks i'm like okay so you don't even suffer from these inflationary pressures like, yeah, but you're, you're just talking about the economic side of things. Actually, there's a lot of stuff on the libertarian side where they talk about the kind of evil behavior of the state, and I think a lot of it's true. I, I, I disagree with all these fucking wars. I think, I think, 
I, I agree with I agree that the state has a propensity towards leaning to tyranny. And again, that's I mean, you want to you want to understand again, that is the American principle. Like America was founded on those values. We we left your country because we accused your king of tyranny, right? We we left because of tyrannical pressures or things that we perceived to be tyrannical pressures. We we pithily stated that concern as taxation without representation, right? We didn't get to vote somebody in. We weren't represented in parliament. Therefore, we had to leave because we were being taxed. So we didn't get any say in that tax. It was just like... You know, th this idea of taxation, which libertarians hate, uh, being essentially, you know, in the American uh, ethos, sort of, okay, if you are in fact a party to the negotiations of that collective bargain, right? So we send somebody to Washington, D.C. to collectively bargain for us. And, you know, a lot of, I have issues with the way the construction of our government exists as it is today. I have, I have issues with uh, state overreach. But, like, I think that there's nuance to those discussions that libertarians can't actually have because their principles are articulated in these 75-page manuals that they have, like Locke's uh, Leviathan or something like that, where they, they read from them, they quote from them, and they don't have any sort of nuance that they take away from those books, and those are important books to read, but they aren't, you know, they're written in the 1800s. Economics, for example, is a very new science. Read Adam Smith, but then also read, you know, Keynes. Also read Hayek. Also read, you know, everybody. You can go ahead and read von Mises if you want. Those four million page books, that's okay. That's a different kind of libertarian. I generally uh, partition libertarians nowadays into 75 page readers and von Mises, you know, thousand page book readers. But, you know, to me, there's actually nuance in the discussions about the powers of the state and uh, the overreaching powers of the state and the function of the state that libertarians just don't have access to because they are obsessed with these sort of unnuanced pithy arguments rather than the deeper arguments about like what it is that they're actually concerned about. Nap is stupid. Don't tell me that there's a principle, this sort of Nash equilibrium uh, optimization where you say like I'm just not going to ever hurt anybody unless they hurt me first and then I can hurt them with equal force or like whatever the hell it is and then you'd get you get down to it and you start talking about like what is uh, harm like were you harmed when your neighbor I don't know did X like stepped on your grass oh yeah I'd shoot him like <laughs> okay like go fuck yourself like I, I don't know how to talk to you about this sort of unnuanced paradigm that you're forcing me into discussing nap might work in like an enclave where everyone agrees to live by that way you know what it doesn't work in it doesn't work in a world where your aggressor has nuclear weapons and is china and has trillions of dollars that they can spend on taking your land away from you it's it doesn't work in that world because the most logical thing for china to do is just violate nap well, the thing is, uh, that was one of the things I've come to with NAP is that NAP works if everyone agrees to follow NAP and the principal NAP are all agreed. But then I, I got into one discussion with a guy. I did say, because I think the nuance is important. I said, what happens if someone breaks NAP? What if someone just goes and kills a couple of people? And he was like, well, he gets arrested. And I was like, well, who arrests him? He's like, By whom? the private police force. But I said, what if there isn't one? He said, well, the free market will create one. I was like, okay, okay, so... How does this police force come to be? He said, well, the free market will decide that we need a police force and then it will merge. I was like, okay, all right, cool. I, I agree with that. Okay, so this guy's uh, who's going to pay 
for this guy's like prison keep. It's like, well, no, they charge him for it. And I was like, well, what if he refuses to pay? He was like, well, then be arrested then he, again. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> we went round and round in circles. And it's like, I don't like the police force. I certainly think the US has the police force is much worse than the UK. I don't like it, but I've never seen a good rational version. And also, there's a really good article on the Libertarian Institute saying, look, if you had a big red button to turn us into a libertarian society, it would be dangerous to press it. And I had just like it, my my view on libertarianism is my same view on socialism, which is my same view on conservatism. Is that there's definitely stuff I like in each and every area, right? I like the idea of freer markets. I do. I think I think there are too many regulations. I, I like a smaller state. I think that's a good idea. I really do. I, I I like the idea of a social safety net that protects the most vulnerable in society. I like the fact that in the UK. That if you build a, you know, if you construct a public space, it has to be accessible for people in a wheelchair. It has to be done. I like that. I like the fact that right now, that during this lockdown, there is a government agency that is trying to help people who are victims of abuse. I, I, I like that that exists. I like, I like the social safety. I like conservative ideas about, you know, allowing people to to educate their children how they want. I think there's interesting stuff in each one. I think when you go down the rabbit hole of being fully tied to one ideology, then you don't accept the re reality of the life we're living in. You're not accepting the most important part is that people are different. Well, I was going to say a libertarian society is in itself a violation of NAP because it forces libertarian ideals onto people who want to live in a communist society. It forces ideals of libertarianism. I mean, like this idea of maximum freedom is is unique. It's very American. It's specifically American. Maximum freedom is incredible. And I, I support this sort of idea of maximum freedom. And what, what I think libertarians fail to realize is that maximum freedom requires guard, you know, guide, guardrails. And we have to agree on who is allowed to exercise uh, force within those guardrails. And so there's sort of this idea. I mean, uh, if, are you familiar with like Max Weber? No. Max Weber is this old uh, sociologist, uh, 19th century, I think, uh, sociologist, and he has an entire paper on what a government is. And essentially what he says is the government is the, the entity that is justified in using force. We all agree that they're the ones that are justified in using force, right? So that's the government. Maybe in some time, sometimes the government is the mafia, right? Uh, Maduro is a good example of something like that, right? Like you have this sort of despotic, uh, despotic regime that says we are the ones that are the the only people that are allowed to use force. Well, that's a very very interesting sort of understanding of what government is. And again, in the United States, what's amazing is that we have this entity. It's the state or the federal government that is the one that's allowed to use force. And within that, they provide guardrails and guide rails. As a guardrails, they provide guardrails for individuals to sovereignly exercise that same right so in a sense you are self-governed but you're self-governed within the guardrails of the state which then says that you are allowed to self-govern to this extent and beyond that extent is is not allowed and the beauty of it is that it removes the need for things like vigilante justice right like if you think about it there are some really perfectly reasonable 
responses to finding someone doing something evil, right? I mean, in a if you you find you walk into a house and you find a guy raping a little child, uh, I I'm okay with everybody getting together and uh, hanging that guy by a tree and you know burning him. You know that's fine. Okay, we all we're all okay with that. You know what though? In a state in a in a state uh, apparatus, you remove the need for vigilante justice, and now you can call the police. And the government has a set of punishments that they can exercise on that person, and they can create order through this process. And, like, I think that's a better system of justice than this notion of, like, the, the idea of vigilante justice. While I think that there could be a world in which that is something that you need, like if your, for example, state isn't a cohesive state, we, we live in a world where we don't need to exercise that individual freedom to, you know, run down the, the miry sort of mucky world of vigilante justice because we have a state that is cohesive and capable of, of doling out justice to people that deserve it, even in that case, in that evil, disgusting, terrible case. And that's a wonderful world to live in. Libertarians like the idea, I, I feel like, of the world where you disaggregate government to the point where vigilante justice is the norm and maybe you know maybe they they would like to say the police force thing would happen but like the first thing that has to happen is vigilante justice before the market realizes that maybe you want a police force you need then to like have the establishment of courts the beauty of a state is that it can establish those things by fiat and it can say hey you know we have a need for a police force Let's let's build one. We have a need for a you know court. Let's build one. And sure, the government sucks at efficiency. It's not great at that. Uh, you know, I've heard the analogy from libertarians. You know, the 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 state educates your kids. It's like McDonald's educating your kids. Like why why would McDonald's be good at that? They're not educators. It's not their primary function. The government's primary function is not education. Okay, I mean. Maybe maybe there's some really good arguments there about things the government really shouldn't be doing. Maybe the government shouldn't be educating, um, but maybe it should be, right? But you have an opt-out. I don't know all the answers. So, yeah, you can opt out. You In America, we have a public-private system. And the beauty is that uh, people being uneducated is an externality. It's a huge externality. We don't want to live in a world where people are uneducated. You know what else is an externality that we as individual sovereign individuals need to govern is the fact that the government can sometimes become an, uh, an arm of propaganda. And I think that that's what a lot of people are very worried about is that you know government is teaching kids things that we don't necessarily want them to teach. You know what? In America, you can fucking homeschool your own goddamn kid. So no, it's if, not against if you're the homeschooling... It's not. It's not only against the law. Millions of people do it. Mm. You can well, teach. You can propagandize your own child. It's amazing. See, this is where I I got into some disagreements recently, because it's. I think this COVID nineteen thing. There's is so many interesting, like sub discussions around it, like the post coronavirus world, the current coronavirus world. There's so much information, misinformation, arguments, but. If you have a large Bitcoin following on Twitter, there is definitely a bias in the opinions towards how this, what's currently happening is the perfect example of an infringement on your freedoms. I can't leave my house because the state will arrest me. But there is a real scary reality in that we do have a lot of people dying. Like within the next couple of days, the US is going to have the the largest number of deaths and it's going to become, I mean, essentially the epicenter for this now. 
Um, and we don't know 100%, nobody knows 100% whether or not the lockdowns make a difference. My assumption is they do, but we don't know how much. We don't know how much of the population is infected. So we have this kind of choice where people are debating, well, I want my absolute freedom. Okay, for you to have your absolute freedom is mostly likely going to lead to more people dying. It most likely is. And that's a really interesting area of discussion because... It's so tied to... I did a show with Andreas where I, the, the question was, is coronavirus a test of uh, your personal identity? Because there are people out there whose personal identity is so tied to the ultimate freedom away from the state, no state, uh, libertarians, anarcho-capitalists. It is impossible now for any of them to turn around and admit, do you know what? A lockdown might be a good idea. Because if they admit the lockdown is a good idea, it, it collapses their entire identity so they can't do it and therefore you can't even get into the nuance of the debate i mean i did i got scott horton on and we talked about it and he said look in extreme scenarios you know we can accept certain things for the state but we have to ensure they retract from their powers blah 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 but you can't get into the nuance of a debate where someone's identity is tied to no government when actually one of the solutions one of the things you can put on this table is is a lockdown uh, appropriate right now you're missing a you're missing a word there too though like it's not just a lockdown right because you can lock yourself in your house yeah right anybody can do that and you know i i i uh bruce fenton was on twitter screaming and raving about this thing i i more quietly prepared i saw uh, i actually saw this virus as kind of the big one i was telling all of my family okay you need to go to the store prepare you need to get your, your supplies you know, make sure that your fridge is full and make sure you have at least, you know, a month or two's worth of food. We don't, I don't know what's going to happen to supply chains. And I'm glad that I did that because now, uh, you know, now I'm prepared and they're prepared and uh, the rest of the world is freaking out, right? But the, the thing you're missing here is that the response needs to be a coordinated lockdown. And I don't know how else you would coordinate the lockdown. I mean, if it wasn't a coordinated lockdown, I'd be in my house for eight months as like outside would be seeing like terrible death. And I would just hope, hope that I pick the right time to come out. Yeah, it's a really tough area, area to debate, really tough area to debate, because if you are one of those people, your your kind of ultimate view is that I want incomplete freedom to do what I want. The government shouldn't be able to tell me to do anything to agree with some coordinated lockdown is to agree with the state. Now, I'm sure there's some libertarian argument about how the people will coordinate themselves for some kind of lockdown. Uh, I know some people will only respond to threat. I know it because what we have, even now, there was a, yesterday in London, 30 guys got together for a game of cricket. I mean, right in the middle of a nationwide lockdown that everyone is aware that you're not meant to be, you're meant to be social distancing, you're not meant to be near each other. 30 guys got together and said, fuck it, let's have a game of cricket. Now, look, I, I like the idea of them exercising their freedom and saying, we're going to play this game of cricket. But at the same time, if one of them has COVID-19 and he spreads it to other guys and they get sick and they go to a hospital, they, on the way... To, in the two weeks before they get sick, they risk going to Tesco's and Sainsbury's, buying some grocery, picking up an apple and spreading the disease to a shop worker. They risk going to the hospital and, and, and making a health worker sick. And we've seen in Italy over 100 health workers have died. In the UK, I think we're approaching 10 health workers. We've had 15 people, transport workers, the bus drivers, the train drivers, they're dying. Like This disease is no fucking joke. It might not be Spanish flu levels, but it's no fucking joke. Like, every day the numbers come in. Yesterday, it was like 950 people, I think, in the well, UK. I, I, 
And they said I 43 of those, actually... sorry, they said 43 of those oh, were with known unknown conditions. There was a 23-year-old. Like, this isn't just a flow. I mean, anyone spouting that now is a fucking idiot. So we are dealing with this issue. It's like, what is the sacrifice? And actually, the sacrifice is, look, if I want my freedom... I want to accept that there will be a wider spread and other people are going to die. But the reality is, is the people saying this, there's no health worker saying this. The people saying this are the people who can just stay in their home and order their online shopping and lock themselves down. The people not saying this are the bus drivers, are the, the supermarket workers, the medical staff, because they're the ones seeing people die or they're the ones risking death going to work every day. So I think you have to have to be able to have the debate about the lockdown and whether it's valid and and what and what are the reasons you might want to have it and how it should be exercised. If you're if you're shutting down the debate by saying, well, it's uh, it removes my freedom, you're moving any intellectual honesty in in discussing what ultimately leads to more people just fucking dying. Yeah, I mean, I can see how the apparatus of the lockdown can become a very scary precedent for people, given how government has moved to sort of re-exercise its power over and over again. I mean, like we see it with 9-11 mm-hmm. and the repassing of the Patriot Act every couple of years. They don't seem to want to give that up, even though that the American people, I think as a whole, think it's a very bad piece of legislation. Um, but at the same time, we do want the government to protect us, right? So there's this kind of dual belief that you know the government needs tools to protect us, but we don't like the tools, but we also don't really have any better ideas, right? And I do think there's a danger in government realizing that it can declare emergencies and just lock everyone in their houses for a little while until they declare the emergency is done. And I see the I see the the grave danger in that. And I think that we should all recognize that there is a grave danger in all of this uh, becoming normal. And I, I, again, I think I'm back to like sort of the Viberian concept of routinization, where you have this sort of like. Uh, you know, this normative uh, action that occurs or this action that's non-normative and is maybe efficacious, right, in some way. Uh, In this case, it might be good at staving off a disease, right, killing a pandemic. But as, as we move forward, eventually this just becomes protocol for emergencies of some sort, right? And 20 years from now, 30 years from now, no one remembers why we started doing it, but we just all know uh, instinctively that the thing we do when there's an emergency is we go into our house and lock ourselves in our home and ruin the economy for 30 days. And I fear that sort of routinization. I fear that sort of forgetfulness of how of where we were a month ago as Americans walking around and slapping each other's butts and sitting next to each other in, in stadiums, you know, two and a half feet away from a person uh, that, uh, that we don't know and, uh, you know, close enough to smell each other's farts. Like, that's, that's the kind of world that we all like, that we want to be in, and I don't want to lose that, and I mm-hmm. do fear that this will uh, routinize the sort of act of turning, you know, emergency declarations into these objects of jailing people in their own homes, right? I I fear that. But at the same time, I don't know what else you would do in this case. And I think it requires people like me who who understand that that is a risk to watch out for it and make sure that that doesn't happen. And again, in America, the beauty of it is, is that we have guns. So if the government decides to get out of line, there is always the nuclear option that America has built in constitutionally for the citizens to rise up and kill tyr- or to kill the tyranny. And I think that that is a, 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 
a means to prevent the government from acting in a way that will cause that. And maybe, you know, the sort of Overton window concept where you uh, expand, you know, people's willingness to uh, maybe do things that wouldn't have been acceptable five years ago or 10 years ago, maybe, maybe this increases that. But there's a world in which the government pushes too far. I yeah. don't know that we're there. Well, the, but the, the beauty of America is that we have we have redress. But that's the complexity of the problem, because the yes. arguments on both sides are valid. There is a sound argument to say to protect lives with a pandemic where we don't really know the true nature of how um, how how fast it spreads and how many people it's going to kill. We just don't know. We nobody can actually say. Well, if we did nothing, X number of people will die. Nobody can say that. Nobody knows if it's 2.2 million or 500,000. They don't know that. Or, and and so there is a very sound argument to say, look, is it best for the protection of life and the protection of people that we have some form of lockdown? And that's a fair debate. And then the other side of the argument is the fear of, of overreach of the state and these being new powers and, all oh, right, uh, Thursday we've got a lockdown, yep, yeah, and we are being used to it. The, the, I think the arguments are sound on both sides. My thing is, I'm trying to say, is like, how do you navigate the nuance of that? And and also, as somebody has a Bitcoin podcast, how do you navigate the nuance of that without committing career suicide? Because strictly speaking, with the more radical side of Bitcoin, strictly speaking, I should be, this is bullshit, this is anti-state, I should do what I want. I, at the same time, I don't live in a Bitcoin world. My Bitcoin world is Twitter and my podcast. I then go out into my normal life which is all my friends who will vote left or right, who are doctors, who are nurses, who are shop workers, who are IT guys, and then I sit and talk to them. There's no there's no debate around that. They're like, this is fucked up. Everyone needs to stay at home. And like trying to navigate all this nuance is, a, is very complicated. But treating it as black and white, I think, is dishonest to everyone. And it's it doesn't accept there are different people with different opinions and views. I mean, I've got to the point where it's like, Look, you can't even stop the lockdown. It's not like anyone can stop this. It's happening. So what do we deal with what's in front of us? And I think the most important thing is to keep a very close close eye on the state. And actually, this is something we're also pretty good in the UK with the media. The media has been providing a lot of pressure onto the government to say, look, we've got police in Derbyshire using drones. We've got somebody going for a walk in the countryside on their own and they're being fined. This is a bit much. So we do have some pressure from the media. But... Uh, th- this is a real fucking test right now of what is best for people, and it's a really complicated area. And trying to debate it as someone with a Bitcoin podcast added, adds extra pressures. It, it almost goes back to, um, again, to what Brian's saying. There's two kinds of pressures, right? There's the pressures of the economics of running the business, and then there's the pressures of your audience. And sometimes you just got to say, fuck it. This is what I think. If I lose an audience, so be it. And if I lose a sponsor, so be it. But I've gotta, you've got to stay fucking honest. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> for me, uh, I, I have a very sort of strong sense of the goals of my life. And um, I'm a Christian, and I tend to view very much uh, one's purpose as being very much outside of the notion of the state. And there's, you know, that's that for me is a, a comforting feeling, right? Like I don't necessarily view myself as obligated to live within the paradigm, right? Like, so for example, if the United States becomes corrupt and terrible, well, the United States is the earthly authority that I answer to, and I will live within it. But I also have a set of rules that I believe very strongly in living by that are outside of the state's rules. 
right? And if they be, you know, and, and those are things like justice and love and charity and stuff like that, right? And if the state begins violating those things, then I myself stop caring about what the state does. And if I go to prison for violating those things, but I live in the way that I am called to live in my faith, then I, you know, I, I very much view that as, uh, as sort of like fulfilling the meaning of life, right? And so like for me, the idea of like having a career and sponsors is a little bit anathema because that for me has never been like sort of the purpose of anything that I've ever done or, or, or wanted to do. Um, Bitcoin Uncensored was mostly fart jokes and stuff, but it was <laughs> the goal of it, if you listen to it, is to convey truth at all costs. And for me, again, that goes back to sort of my understanding of, of what it means to be a person of faith and real simple. Um, I think like biblically, the Bible says, seek and you will find. I think that is a directive for Christians to look for truth in all things at all costs. And uh, the idea of you will find is you will find me in Christ who is truth. Okay, so if that's the case, then I believe that the purpose of life, at least um, for someone of faith, and if, if the faith is correct, then this is a correct statement, is to seek truth at all costs. And if truth leads you away from you know, God or whatever it is, then that's truth. And if it leads you towards him, then that's truth. Um, sounds like you're, uh, probably, sorry to interrupt. It sounds like you're describing journalism, what journalism should be. That's, but th- this is my entire point is like journalism or all things like these are ex- the, the reason I think in like a Judeo Christian framework, a lot of like what works in America works is because this notion of like seeking absolute truth matters. So when you have a deconstructive environment wherein the world is kind of like in this post platonic, um, modernist sort of like post truth world, uh, you have a lot of you have a lot of issues because this idea of looking for truth is sort of meaningless, right? You can't actually find truth if it doesn't exist. So you have these like deconstructionists now that are trying to like say that truth doesn't exist. Well, if that's the case, you've literally ruined sort of the basis of American society because American society is rooted in these principles of searching for absolute truth. And again, whether the principles the Christian principles themselves, and, and this is why, like, I, I'm, you know, I like Weber a lot for a lot of reasons. But Weber uh, is sort of the one of the first people to kind of look at someone. He is in his book, uh, Spirit of Capitalism. He looks at Benjamin Franklin as his kind of Ubermensch, and he uses him as the ideal. He says, "Look, um, back in the day, Christians sort of had this idea that they they were blessed. And if they were blessed, it would be shown in the fact that they were successful. Well, in order to be successful, you had to work hard. And the manifestation of working hard is success, right? Mm -hmm. So what you have is you have this like, work ethic that is imbued in Christians and early in, in uh, particularly uh, Dutch Christians who work hard in order to show the world that in order to prove that they are blessed and they thus end up becoming very entrepreneurial they develop things like markets etc cetera, etc cetera. well then you have a world in which uh, you know America rises up and you have a lot of Christians in that world but you also have people that act exactly like the Christians act and he uses uh, Benjamin Franklin as ex- an example Benjamin Franklin, at this point isn't working for God. He's working for the 
the mere fact that work is something that he views as a good. So that word routinization earlier, the idea is that work, the, the ethic of work, has been routinized in such a way that you no longer need God, right? And you have that combined with like sort of these Nietzsche declarations that God is dead. That's what that comes out of is the idea that you don't necessarily need to have God in, uh, in your ethos, in your understanding of the world, in order to exercise the things that would be the Judeo-Christian world. But when you start removing things like truth, which are the basis of the conception, um, the, the basis of someone like Benjamin Franklin's life, he lived to look for truth. Uh, his, incidentally, uh, as he did that, he didn't become closer to God. He whored and did whatever he wanted to do. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of, he found an awful lot of truth right? He sought truth and he found a lot of it. And I think that that, like in my life, that's always been the goal. I don't remember exactly how that, oh, so, so to your question about the career, like for me, like I've never cared about the career stuff. I think when we do this stuff, I think my goal has always been what is true. And if it's not true, I'm not that interested in it. If it's not an exploration of what is true, I'm not that interested in it. And, you know, you can get that in a lot of ways. And it goes back to that question about is Donald Trump being honest or is he not? Well, maybe. Um, and, and truth doesn't always look like what you think it looks like. It's not just about, like, words, right? Someone can say that they believe very strongly in charity, but if they never do any charity, they don't believe strongly in charity. It's just, like, you know, they, they can say they believe in it. Whereas if someone says, I, I love charity, uh, and, or I hate charity, right? Maybe that's a Donald Trump phrase. I hate charity. But he does a lot of charity. Then he really does actually believe in charity. So it doesn't matter necessarily the words you use to say things in terms of like the, the truth, uh, the truthiness of your life and like your, the, the closeness that you are to truth. And that's just the reality, I think, of the world is that like if you're seeking truth, you can in fact find quite a lot of it just by looking very hard for it, asking hard questions, um, being honest about your search for it. And in so far as like you're building a career on like political uh, stuff, like you know, you can play that game. I don't like playing that game because it just doesn't like. I don't think politics uh, are great revealers of truth. I think that it's sort of uh, politics ends up becoming like a series of macros where like you are in politics and you say certain you have to say certain things in order to please certain people. Yeah, but I don't do it. That's like the that. thing. I do end up pissing people well, up I all know. the time. And look, it was good. For, it was good at the start. It was good for profile. I didn't do it to get profile. It just I just said what I think, and and I still say what I think, and it every time gets me into a world of shit. Like even just this this building a Bitcoin podcast and then saying you believe the state can do some things that that would be better than in a free anarcho-capitalist society as a risk i'll say it i don't give a fuck but it comes with a lot of pressures it comes with a lot of criticism you know fucking trolls going oh he's just a fucking status over and over again whereas i am what i am trying to do is i'm trying not to blindly follow a certain let's say it's a, a subgroup of Bitcoin because there are multiple Bitcoiners. There are status Bitcoiners. There are capitalist Bitcoiners. There are anarcho-capitalist Bitcoiners. There are libertarian. There's all types of Bitcoiners, right? But there is a certain group grouping which is based on this everything anti-state. The state is bad. Free money. Bitcoin standard. Blah blah blah. And I don't agree with it. And that's my truth. My truth is right now is that I like a lot of the ideas behind Bitcoin. I like a lot of the ideas behind libertarianism. I like the goal for freedom. I like the ideas of free speech because we don't have that in the UK. I like the idea of freer markets. But right now, right in this pandemic, 
if I am being 100% honest, I think there are certain things that the state will do better centrally. And I think there are certain things that in maybe in a uh, free market would be done better. Maybe the sourcing and manufacture of PPE in a free market would have been better. Maybe. Maybe there would have been less stockpiling. You know, maybe the government does more stockpiling. Who knows? I think you have to debate these points honestly and say, let's look at each one of these issues. and Which, which would the state have done better and which would have been better in a, in, a, in a free market? And I don't think you can say every single fucking scenario would have been better in a free market. I think that's well, fundamentally what like, dishonest. What I like about what's happened with COVID, and this is both a tragedy and an interesting thing from like a sociological perspective, perhaps, but... COVID is ripping through all sorts of nations with all sorts of different kinds of designs for like medical systems or, you know, constructions of states like European Union, for example, right? That as juxtaposed with like the United States of America. Um, so, you know, how cohesive is the European Union when they kind of let Italy out to dry, right? Whereas in America, we don't leave Utah or Idaho out to dry. We work with them no matter what. And that's just the way the, the U.S. works. It's a very different kind of cohesion that we have here among the states, uh, you know, federally. We just, it's, it's, I don't know if it's a culture issue or what the deal is, but it's very different than the European Union, which is sort of this conglomeration of individual sovereign nations, right? And each of them have different kind of health systems. Like, you know, I think Italy's is pretty, uh, pretty socialist, kind of what we would call socialist healthcare. And each of them are faring differently in different ways. And I think what's going to be, interesting at the end of this is to analyze how particularly America comes out of it because the way that America is coming out of it is basically taking this sort of war powers act this this idea that we have all of this productive capacity and this intellect that we can sort of turn and pivot on a dime and say hey uh, you were a car maker, but this week you're going to be making masks out of cotton for healthcare workers, and you're going to be pumping out as many as you can, and this other company over here is going to help you retool, right? I think that that's going to be the great savior of the United States when all of this is said and done, and I think that that is going to be very interesting because it's sort of this hybrid capitalist slash uh, government um, mandated uh, use of the capitalist spirit that is going to save us. And if that works, that'll be really fucking interesting when all is said and done. Because yeah. no other nation has that. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's on a scale, right? I mean, the UK has the ability to do certain Sucks. things. Certain things. Not to oh, the extent, okay. you know, we don't have executive powers to go and order companies to change the way they're working. But we have had companies just do it anyway. We've had Dyson start making ventilators. It's happened. We've had the ability for the government just to go and build in nine days. They built a uh, a new hospital in central London and they're planning 13 more. I interviewed a lady who's a health communicator out in uh, Africa and we're talking about Kenya. Kenya has 155 ICU beds for a population of 50 million. I think we have something like three and a half thousand in the UK for a population of 60 million. But we can quickly spin up, you know, a couple of thousand more. We can quickly call on all previous health workers to come out of retirement. We, Even dentists, we, I hear. Yeah, a, a, anything. Anyone can come out. <laughs> like if my mum was still alive, she would have got on a first plane back here and she would be nursing. And she would and she'd have risked her life and just fucking done it. We have We have that. Kenya doesn't have that. Kenya can't suddenly build a hospital in nine days. I mean, perhaps it can, but I doubt it. It can't, certainly can't just go and build 13. Also, when Kenya goes into a lockdown, 
you're locking down people who don't have jobs, who hustle every day just or to survive. Food. Who's going to provide them with food? Where's the food going to come from? They, 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 they cannot do that to the extent that other nations can. And that's a really interesting thing to watch. And again, if you want to compare it to like a libertarian society, how would a libertarian society really have functioned through this? Now, if a libertarian writes the thesis on how that would have happened, of course, it would have been perfect. But you can't intellectually, honestly, have a libertarian write that. You have to debate the point. You, I mean, one of the things is I think that the state can do better than, say, a free market is the speed of response. And the speed yes. of response with something like this is super important. Yes, in a free market, companies could just suddenly say, oh, there's an e economic opportunity here. Let's start building, let's start creating masks. Okay, well, you need to get the resources and you need to get the, the, the parts. You need to get the staff where you're going to get them. But do you have limited finance to do that? Whereas a government can just go, let's print a bunch of money. Right, you fucking make this. I think it's fair to debate that. And I think it's, I think we have to be honest to debate that. And if you can honestly debate that, then you, I think you can actually dismantle the parts of the state which are a waste. You can actually look at the state and go, right, look, tax is high. There is overreach. Which of the bits can we dismantle? Which are the bits that are best run by the state which aren't? Like head towards that minarchist idea. And I don't know how, how big uh, – like I know there's definitions of a minarchist society, but perhaps there's a minimal government. Like Perhaps there's one we can strive towards, and we can do that by, by learning about what's happened here. Well, you know, if that that's interesting to you, what's been very interesting to me has been the sort of unveiling of the power of the supply chain. Yeah. And how I mean, I think this is what's amazing in America, we have rail and road and all these, you know, ways in which food gets from one place to another. And I think I think it's been amazing to watch grocery stores continue to function throughout this. I mean, who knows how long that's going to last? I hope they continue to. But grocery stores, the postal service, UPS, FedEx, DHL, I mean, the supply chain in at least in the United States has been rock solid incredible. Sure stores are out of toilet paper from time to time, but we have this incredible supply chain that I I am in awe of. I am just sitting here pissing myself watching this thing chug along in spite of hardship. Like all of the sourcing of things, all of that stuff. I'm sure there's people scrambling in office buildings making sure that there's chicken in the grocery store. I'm sure that that's happening, but I'm not doing it. You know, I don't have to do it. And uh, I'm amazed. I'm amazed by that. And I'm amazed at the robustness of it. And to me... That, that's a small miracle. I, I can't believe how good we are at inventory management. I can't believe how good we are at diverting resources and growing food and moving food and making sure that everybody is fed. And, uh, you know, it's just, to me, the entire thing's incredible. Next up, I talked to John Seth about a whole bunch of other things, loads and loads of things. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. So firstly, let's talk about the best crypto exchange out there, the mighty, mighty Kraken. How you doing out there? Are you trading? Are you buying these dips? Are you buying your Bitcoin? I am. I'm increasing my Bitcoin holding. I've gone up by 10% in the last couple of weeks. I've decided after seeing the crypto haze tweet, I'm all in motherfuckers. Like, I am in with Bitcoin. I am worried about this printing money. I know I need to hedge against the market. So I am all in Bitcoin. And the only exchange I use is Kraken. 
And there's a few reasons why. Firstly, it is the most secure crypto exchange out there, bar none, unquestionable. They also have the best customer service out there. They will answer any request from anyone to help you get through what you need. They've got such an amazing suite of services. Whether you're just starting out and you're at Kraken.com buying your first Bitcoin or you're one of those whales and you've got a shitload you need to buy and you want to use the OTC markets, they also have a beautiful mobile-first app. So whatever you're doing, if you're sat on Netflix and you're watching Tiger King, you're like, shit, I want to buy some more Bitcoin. If you're out on your government-approved walk and you're thinking, yeah, time to Bitcoin, you can do it with Kraken Pro. They're amazing mobile-first app. Look, there is no better place to buy Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Also, we have the amazing BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. I've got an interview coming up. I recorded with Zach and Flory last week. That's going to be out next week. I put all the difficult questions that people put to me about having them as a sponsor right at them. Everything from market volatility, black swan events, and coin joins. They answer everything. It's all there. If you want to hear the answers to these questions, check into that next week. Now, listen, they've sponsored me for 18 months, but I've also been a customer. Coming up to a year now, I'm a customer of their interest accounts. I get my interest in Bitcoin and monthly. I love it. But they also do have their crypto back loans, which allows you to access liquidity without selling by using your crypto as collateral. You can unlock up to 50% of the value of your assets in USD. So whether you want a loan or an interest account, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. I think I think we're quite early on in understanding the impact on the supply chain. Because I think the cracks are will start to appear a little bit later down the line. So a couple of things that were on my mind. You know, do you know the whole um, uh, Milton Friedman thing about uh, no one knows how to make a pencil, right? Yes. Yeah. So the interesting thing about that, I'd heard that before, but I'd only heard it to the extent where someone explained there's not a single person. I'm, I'm actually reading the Pantera Capital blog because that's where it came from. I just interviewed Dan Moorhead, so we covered it. And he's, it says, there's not a single person in the world who can make this pencil. Remarkable statement. Not at all. The width from it, which is made, for all I know, comes from a tree that was cut down in the state of Washington. Yeah. And I've heard about that. And where does the lead come from? Where does the rubber come from? But actually, what what I'd never heard is the other bit is like, where does the saw come from to cut down that tree? <laughs> it comes from, you know, and all the other bits of the, the supply chain that lead up to the, the manufacture of the components. So so UPS is still going, but how long do their vans last for? When do the vans start breaking down? How When they need to renew them? We, we have a, a car industry now that's been paused. You know, or the farms. The farms uh, rely on equipment and tractors, and 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 what happens to the machinery during that process? So we ha- do we have to keep the people running? You know, we talk about key workers. Is farm machinery a key worker? Because if a farm can't produce the goods because the farm machinery is broken down, what happens to there on the supply chain? And then the thing that really fucking worries me. You've got all these islands around the world, which are holiday destinations, that are all closed down. No one's going on holiday, right? These island nations. So not only do they rely on the food, uh, the, the, the money coming in to run the economy, but they have to import majority of their food. Yeah. Where are they going to import that food from? And with no tourism and no income coming in, where do they get the money to buy that? It's not like they, they, they can print the US dollar. 
So most likely, any local some of them can currencies here are going to collapse, and I'm really thinking, what the fuck's going to happen to these small island nations? Well, I think it really depends on how long this thing lasts. I mean, here here's the thing. I mean, like there was a, a program under Barack Obama called Cash for Clunkers. Uh, are you familiar with that at all? Nope. Well, there's a lot of study done on it, and basically what the government did is they required people to get rid of old cars. They, they basically traded, you trade your car in and you get a bunch of money and, and uh, a, an ability to exchange it for another car. And, you know, the Democrats here just screamed about how they had, you know, done this amazing thing that really spurred the economy on. And if you looked at it, basically the next month, the demand for cars was down by the equivalent amount that the previous month had jumped <laughs> so all you did is you move the purchasing decision of a car up one or two months or maybe six months right so essentially you you didn't do anything and i'm looking right now at a lot of charts where people are you know looking at business and small business and stuff i think there's a similar effect that's that's happening here where there's a lot of people who are essentially accumulating cash. I mean, think about it. Like, uh, There's some people that are out of work, but many people who are in work, and the government's doing a pretty good job of uh, really encouraging companies to keep people hired. So there's a lot of people that are in work, and they're accumulating money. I mean, I'm saving so much money by not eating out. Dude. Uh, so much. I think what is likely to happen is that if we can get free of this thing by let's say maybe end of may let's say we see some light at the end of the tunnel end of may I, and people start coming out of their house trickling out and uh you know like a groundhog and they start just participating back in a semi-normal economic way i think this economy is going to rip i think fourth quarter is going to be the biggest fourth quarter anyone's ever seen i think there's going to be some areas that suffer I think maybe restaurants might not be frequented as much because people for the first time in their lives have a pantry. So there might be some more like home cooking that occurs. But honestly, I think that people have saved so much money the last few months, those that have been in work, that what's going to happen is there's going to be a goddamn spending spree like we've never seen before. And uh, people are going to be buying homes. You know, I hope millennials are stashing away money because I'm sick of hearing them tell me that they can't afford houses. This is the time to do it, guys. Stash your fucking money away. Put as much as you can into this low market, and uh, and then when it rips, you'll have a lot more money than when you started, and mm. that's how you afford a home. See, I, I'm not so optimistic for a couple of reasons. Well, firstly, I'm not an economist. I don't know how you come out of a, a, a recession and you get the wheels of motion going again. Uh, I think this will be a fake recession. I, I'm, I think it's a false recession. Well, there's a couple. Uh, there's a couple of factors, though. So, firstly, is how do we come out of it? And there's multiple ways. There is the fact that. You know, we don't really know whereby, say, say, for example, the government turns around, say in the UK, say we get ahead of this by the end of the May and they said, OK, we're going to uh, we're going to lift um, some of the restrictions. And perhaps they'll say certain kind of businesses can open. And then the kind of businesses we have to be in person, restaurants, hairdressers, gyms, salons. OK, so that's that's the first thing they'll they'll do. And maybe people who can work from home will stay working from home. And then they'll monitor that for a month and see what happens. Is, is there a spike? So there is that. But one of the other factors we have to put into this is like, even if they do that, are people going to go back out to those businesses? Because we're all aware that anyone, any of us can catch this. Some of us don't know if we've got it. I mean, in some ways, it's 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 the it's the Willy Wonka ticket to have the test. Say you've had it, you're fine, great. I can fucking go out and do what I want. But if you've not had it, 
you're playing a lottery until either a vaccine comes out. So we're certainly not going to see the same numbers. And then when we do, is even though we have our rich, uh, freedoms again, some people are going to be like, do you know what? I don't want to go into a packed pub full of people because I might catch this. Or what's going to happen with sports? Like think about live sports, right? Everyone, you go to a stadium packed with 60,000 people. Are they going to do it that basically we'll have social distancing at live sport to begin with? So they can only sell a seat that's in isolation and all the seats that sit around that isn't. So basically only one in nine seats are sold because people are so fucking scared. Or is there optional areas? Is there social distancing stand and the non-social distancing stand? What happens with dating, dude? Like you can go on a Tinder date and you you have a lot of success and she's like, Look, do you want to come back to mine? It's like fuck no! I don't know if you've got the. I don't know if you've got you've got COVID. I might I might have sex with you and die. Like there's a lot of things. I don't think we just suddenly come out of this and think right everything everything full steam ahead. What? I think there's going to be a lot of fear in society. People aren't going to want to hug. They aren't going to want to touch surfaces. So I don't think we. I don't think it's not like when I interviewed Dan Moorhead, he talked about nine eleven. The thing about nine eleven, it was like that was a V shaped mini kind of like market downturn. Planes didn't fly for three days. Everything stopped. No one knew what the fuck was going on. And then everything started again. We're coming out with so many different factors that I think are going to, you know, naturally people are going to have fear. And also, what happens if they lift the restrictions and then suddenly there's another spike? Then you're in that situation where it's like, right, well, we either lock down until um, we lock down until we get to the point where we have a vaccine or I turn around and say, look, this is the reality. If you go out, you might get it. If you, if you stay at home, you won't. You can do exactly as you choose. You have the complete freedom. Or that might even be forced upon them that you get so much social unrest. People are like, fuck this, I'm going out. So there's so many different factors at place. L yes, look, there's people out there who've got a perfect answer and they think they know the answer. Nobody knows the fucking answer. Like, we're all going right. to be dealing in hindsight. That's true, but I, I tend to think of humans a little bit like cats. If you've ever looked at a cat trying to like explore an area, they put a, they put one paw in and then they back up, yeah. and then they put another paw in the next day and they like back up, and then eventually their head goes in and they back up, and then eventually they got half their body in and they back up, and then they get their full body in and they back up, and then eventually they're like two steps out and three steps out and four steps out, and like I, I think you're right. I think there's going to be a slowness to getting the economy back online, but I don't think that it's going to be that long, and we are so forgetful i think that people forget we 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 operate news cycle to news cycle often and people will literally forget what was told them yesterday and i think that was i mean that's the interesting thing think about i mean you weren't in the u.s when 9 11 happened i don't think right no no i i, so, I went i actually my first ever time to america was one year after i went to new york that was my first ever trip there and they were still clearing up well, the level of patriotism that occurred after 9-11 was absurd, completely absurd. Everybody was, everybody was together. Everyone had American flags in their yard, everybody. And it was, you, if, if I looked, if I went back there right now and I, I looked at that America, I would have looked at it and said, this is a new America. We are going to be cohesive and just happy together, cuddly friends uh, forever and ever. And now you look at today. If you fast forwarded from 9-11 to today and you just had a time machine where you did it in a second, you'd be like, what the hell happened? And it's just because everyone forgot. Everyone forgot the cohesiveness. And it happened like two weeks 
It took like two weeks for everyone to forget that. It didn't take long. I remember it. Uh, 9-11 happened. Everyone was together. And then two weeks later, they're fighting again as if 9-11 didn't happen. And that's just the way it works. Like humans are very forgetful, particularly Americans. Uh, we don't like to change. Um, we'll be afraid. And then we'll sort of habituate. And what's going to happen is very quickly we're going to be licking toilets again. Because yeah. that's what we do in the U.S. as a tradition. <laughs> well, th there are differences between the U.S. and the U.K. And sometimes I forget that. Like when I'm getting into some kind of discussion, debate on Twitter, and when I'm debating with someone from America, we, we're actually culturally very different in many ways. We speak the same language, right? You guys are like Muslims. <laughs> we speak the same language, but we actually are very different in a number of ways. You know, we have a very different government. We have a very different way of operating. We don't have a we don't have a fucking constitution. We've got a prime minister in an ICU, and we don't know who's running our country because we don't have any way of dealing with this. Uh, we are very different. Sometimes I th I think. I have to understand that, but I I know the way British people will be. They will come out of this, and they will be very nervous of being around each other. They will. But Brits are nervous. Brits are nervous about everything. Yeah, not everything. I'm not. They're, they're, the, you guys, you guys are, you guys are like, you guys are like, uh, just, just, you know, skittish little kitties. Dude, I just went. Like, I just went out to Venezuela. <laughs> I just went out to the most dangerous slum in Venezuela. I mean, I'm a, well, it's not a statement about all Brits. Yeah, like you on. happen to be on on the uh, on 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 the thin end of that curve, right? Like you, you're, you're a danger seeker. I'm trying to, um, I'm going like, to flatten that curve. But yeah, like, like what are, what are Brits going to do? They're like tea and crumpets, right? Like that's y'all, y'all like your fish and chips and tea and crumpets and high tea. Um, in America, we're like, yeah, time to go tame the woods. You know, like we, we go look for the bar in the woods and we're going to like, you know, kill them. Um, we're hunters. We, we are, uh, frontiersmen. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, I don't think that these like Antifa type understand that, but there's a lot of that in Americans and we like danger. Danger is a, a different thing here. It's, you know, um, I mean, a, a good example is that shooter that went into that church in Texas. He, he got a shot off and then looked like a parishioner pulls his gun out and puts two bullets in his head know, half dude. a second later. I love that story. Like that, that is that is the most American thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, yeah, America. Um, that's I mean, that's how we are. We are frontiersmen, uh, and we are we're stupid. Like, I think that I think that people underestimate the level of stupidity that Americans contain within them. Like, we we invented backyard wrestling. You know, like we are not we are not the smartest population, and that that works to our advantage. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not convinced, man. I'm not convinced the economy is just gonna like whir up and go. And I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I honestly don't know what's gonna happen. I think happen. it's gonna be in a like a goddamn rubber band, and everything's just gonna like fire off. I, I hope a lot of things. I like in this post-coronavirus world. I hope a lot of things change. You're right about the stuff at home, though, because we. I mean, historically at home, we will go out for dinner once a week minimum. And we will have takeout at least once a week, right? And if I've got a busy week at work, you know, two or three times. And, and what's been happening with the, the likes of your Uber Eats and your Deliveroo's is you can actually get a good meal now. It's not like I cook dinner or you're having McDonald's. It's like I cook dinner or I can order like I can order a salad or a, a like, like Wagamama's or... Yeah, I can order fairly <laughs> decent fucking food, which which firstly means I get lazy, and secondly means I spend a lot of money. We we've got a full fridge, and every single day I am cooking meals 
for my family. So we're saving money, we're eating better. There's actually loads of good things. I I can't remember the last time I put petrol in my car, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, tw- once or twice a month, I'm filling up my car. That's another hundred and fifty pound. I'm probably saving a hundred pound a week on food. I'm probably spending about another hundred pound a week on alcohol. So maybe that's not so good. But uh, no, that's, well, we, that's not real. But I think. But we're I exercising thing, more. We're going out as a family. We're yes. playing games. Like we are do. We are. We essentially, you know, what we're doing. We're actually following our New Year's Being resolutions. 19, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. We're following our New Year's resolutions. I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat better food. I'm going to be healthier. Yeah. <laughs> like all, I'm going to spend more time with my kids. All those things I make New Year's resolutions for, I never fucking do. I'm doing them. Literally doing them. Yeah. I, I, I'm in a very similar boat. Um, I mean, I think I realized in the middle of this pandemic that Americans have moved to a... I mean, I, I think this this will be no surprise to you, but when I was a kid we would go out to eat on a special occasion. It was something that we would, you know, yeah. as kids, we'd be like, we're going out to eat, you know. But as an adult, I think America's moved in particular in the the urban areas and the suburban areas. Uh, I think we've moved to a eating out all the time economy. And it's, it's I mean, it, it, it's healthy to varying degrees, right? Like you can find good eating out or bad eating out. But it's about, you know, I think Americans have perceived that the convenience of eating out is worth the trade-off of the time it takes to cook your own food. Well, you know, here I am at home cooking a bunch, finding fast recipes. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I have a pantry, which I never had before. So I've started buying food in bulk, and I know exactly what I need and exactly what quantity. And... um you know, I've been trimming down. I have, uh, I have very, you know, cans and in certain quantities, and I, I know when to replace them. And I've got pantry management down to a science now, which is like my grandma. And I'm realizing that after all of this is said and done, I'm going, I'm logging into my bank account, and I'm realizing that I have an extra three or four thousand dollars in my bank account mm-hmm. every month. And I've talked to a number of other Americans who said, you know. Eating out has become the singular, sing, single biggest expense that many of us have. Uh, you know, those who make a little bit more money, whom I know, are spending upwards of three thousand dollars a month on eating out. And think about it—that's a hundred bucks a day. But where does you that know, money really go? If, that if everyone starts saving a bit more, like we need less fuel, we, we can walk. We don't like one of the things I, I wanted to stop doing is using my car unless I have to. Uh-huh. Like I've enjoyed walking, just going out and walking. I, I love that. So if we stop buying as much fuel, if we're not going to restaurants as much, and we're saving more, what does that actually do to the con- economy? Because the economy well, it, is it, based it on spending. Things. It, well, kind of. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're not going to spend. Like, you're going to still spend. It's just that you're going to have $6,000 to go on a vacation now, right? Like, people spend years of time. I mean, I, I wonder how much this is going to, uh, like, resolve some of the incredible debt crises that are looming under the surface. Like how many people are going to be able to pay off the credit card they were never able to pay off Mm -hmm. before? Um, I think perhaps there's going to be a lot of people that, you know, still frequent restaurants and stuff, but like they're just going to have a lot more money in their bank account when all this is said and done. Maybe some of them will put it in the stock market for the first time in the history of their lives. Um, Maybe this, you know, lowers TGI, you know, uh, is it TGIF? 
uh, or Olive Garden stock price, but it increases Costco's. So I think that there's just, I mean, people need the same amount of food. It's not disappearing our need for food, right? It's disappearing, you know, the allocation of certain capital in certain segments of the economy. And we'll see how that shakes out and where that goes. It's going to be very interesting. But I don't think that, like, the ability to spend on more things, like, maybe fourth, like, like, honestly, Peter, this is what I'm saying. Like, if all of us have an extra, let's let's say, let's say the average person as a result of this is able to suddenly have a thousand extra dollars, right? Some people that's a lot of money. Some people that's not a lot. It's your UBI. Let's just say it's an extra, an extra thousand dollars, not per month, but just total for the next year. You all of a sudden have an extra thousand dollars. Andrew Yang will be happy with that. Oh yeah. Well, I think the average person spends in the fourth quarter like $1,400 or something like that for Christmas or $1,300. Like you might literally double the amount that every American spends in the fourth quarter on their kids for Christmas. You know, it's just it's astounding to me. I think that people don't realize like that's going to go back into the economy and it's going to rip. That's that's my thinking on all of that. Hmm. I think, yeah, I'm not convinced by ripping, but I am convinced by like there are unknowns and I don't know like so many fucking unknowns that's what I'm convinced about there's so many you're, unknowns you're more humble about it than me I, 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 I think it will rip and you think it won't and I think it's going to be fun to watch where that like lays out I think it will I think it will like kangaroo hop back and forth back and forth until we find <laughs> out what we're actually dealing with here because I still don't think anyone really knows people assume people have got assumptions and well my assumption is based on the fact that I think when this is all done everyone who got fired will basically get rehired right like that companies will bring those people back and there's a chance that that doesn't happen yeah that, and if it doesn't happen yeah there's that, a lot of problems yeah that's, and, I, and that's what I'm worried about. about I'm not sure that happens I just think it'll take time for things to start chugging forward you've got a, the biggest problem will be cash flow. It won't be the fact that, that people won't want to employ people or get the business going. Look, firstly, there will be a boom in hairdressers, right? There will be an absolute oh, yeah. boom in fucking hairdressers. Honestly, I I is even considering like breaking breaking the lockdown and smuggling a hairdresser <laughs> in, dude. Fucking need a haircut. You and I have had a similar thought. Like, I, I this beard is getting like unruly. I was I was gonna go get the beard shapen. I've never had a long enough beard to shape it, and I was excited to do it, and then Corona hit, and now I'm just like, oh, I'm scraggly now for a while. Dude, honestly, <laughs> I'm not sure what I want more, like to get laid or get a haircut, and I think I want a haircut. I really think I want a fucking haircut. It's get, like, I, it just, but there's shit like that. Like, so the hairdressers will boom, and like all the salons will boom. I think the restaurants will have a very quick boom because a bunch of people will want to get out to have dinner because it's just been so long. Uh, I, I, all I want, dude, is some chicken wings. I'm telling you, <laughs> that's all I want. I just want some chicken wings, and like I'm, you know, maybe I'm willing to get Corona for it. I want a cheeky Nando's. You don't have Nando's there, do you? No. What are Nando's? Nando's is like this Portuguese chicken place we have in the UK. When 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 you when, okay. when you go for a Nando's, you just say, "I'm going for a cheeky Nando's," and, and you go <laughs> and you can get like a half chicken, a whole chicken, chicken breast, chicken wings. It's just it's fucking awesome i want a nando's all right i really want a nando's but yes yeah, so like, uh, everyone's got everyone's got a restaurant they want to go to right now like every every morning for breakfast i think to myself how unfortunate i can't get a mcdonald's mcgriddle oh well the look, greatest dude, breakfast sandwich ever created i want a uh, i want a double double from from in an burger but we don't have that oh. here just like i i'm just craving all sorts of foods and i'm making great food here last night i made a like a 
pasta carbonara, which I've never made before. And it was the quickest meal I've ever made. I was very like, it's just fun to make some of this stuff. But, you know, I ate it and I was like, and and I still want like a McDonald's hamburger. <laughs> Dude, well, what's going to happen? Like you're in Florida. Like what's going to happen with Disney when that reopens? Dis- Disney, Disney plus social distancing. I think they're still open, by the way. Oh, they? I think they're just like measuring. Uh, like it's Disney. I think they're like, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Hey, it's listen, like measuring the, temperature another thing I want to ask you about, like the nuance of U.S. politics. Um, yeah. How, how is Joe Biden the, the choice to go up against Donald Trump? Because like, is it, is oh. it, is he like, let me ask you, is he the full guy because they know they're going to lose whoever they put up? So let, let's get rid of someone. I, and uh, save our good candidates for a four years time, or is there like some weird process whereby it's uh, he is the choice? Because what I don't understand as an external person, not fully understand U.S. politics, I hear all about the DNC, which just sounds like a big fucking mess. But like I look at the candidates, and and um, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of Bernie Sanders politics. But if you're a Democrat, it felt like he had a bigger chance of beating Donald Trump than Biden. Every time I see Biden videos on Twitter, he can't string a sentence together. It just well, seems Biden like a is, confused old man. Biden has clearly been in cognitive decline. Uh, we've all seen it, right? Like, I mean, there, I think the Republicans saw it early and those who are centrists saw it early. Like the instant we watched him on stage, we're like, what? the? Like, we know Biden. He's been a, a, a mainstay in American politics for 50 years. We, we've all seen him. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden he gets on stage and the guy like, doesn't know where he is and it's hard to watch because you know we all we all had grandfathers and such that have like gone down the cuckoo train right like we we've we've watched it in our own families alzheimer's or dementia i think in this case would be dementia is it's old age dementia is a hard thing to watch and we're all watching it you know and and his cognitive decline is so so quick from month to month he's much worse and it's it's weird to watch. So, I mean, the American process is is a pretty simple one. You have what's called a primary. Uh, so, like all of the states individually put together, sort of like a, a voting session. Each state gets to decide for themselves how they decide. So, there's caucuses in some uh-huh. caucuses where you get together and you sort of debate who you're going to give your delegates to, and then eventually, through magic. Uh, each individual area figures out who their delegate goes to, and then they report it to the state, right? And then there's also some that aren't caucuses, they're voting. So you like go and you pull the lever for somebody. And then, you know, the plurality wins the plurality of delegates in that state. So that's, those are, there are two ways uh, that, that states decide. And then it culminates in a convention where the delegates get together and declare their intent. Well, the Democrats and the Republicans both have different processes, and the, the Democrats have a superdelegate process, which basically means that they need a plurality, a certain number of these delegates from the states, and uh, when they get to the convention, those delegates have to elect that person, and there has to be a plurality, 51% of those delegates have to pick that person on the first ballot. If they don't pick that person on the first ballot, what happens is a group of people called, and they're pre-designated, the superdelegates step in, and they, it, we move to what's called a brokered convention. So if Biden doesn't get 50% of the votes um, by or delegates by the time he gets to the convention, there is a chance that we move to a brokered convention, at which point the Democratic Party can pick 
any person they want on the face of the earth. So what 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 was the split at that point? Well, uh, I think it's 1,900-ish delegates that, that Biden needs, and he has something like 1,200 right now. And how many did um, um, Bernie have? Bernie had between 900 and 1,000 the last time I looked. So, so they were close, but, but Biden was ahead anyway. Close. Biden was ahead. Interesting. And I don't think that Bernie's uh, momentum was going to pick up at all in these later states. And, I mean, I think I think that Bernie wants to use his delegates along with maybe Warren's to, to jockey for positioning in the party. Um, but there's a lot of, like, talk. I mean, I, my favorite conspiracy now is that Biden uh, Biden's, you know, realizing that he is, in fact, uh, you know, cognitively impaired severely. He may, you know, be in that sort of late stage where he's still lucid in that way. He's able to know what's going on. And there's people now positing that he should make Barack Obama uh, his running mate because while you can only run for president twice in America, I don't think there's actually a rule that you can't be vice president after being president. Really? Obama? (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, I I I don't think there's anything barring it. I think you can only not run two times. So if, if Obama doesn't run, then he could be, you know, vice president. And if, if, uh, if, you know, Joe Biden ends up in enough cognitive decline, maybe, maybe Obama. So this is a conspiracy that some people are positing sort of a conspiracy scenario. I like it a lot. (laughs) There's also been people who think that there's going to go to a brokered convention and pick Hillary Clinton again, which would be just hilarious. What what about Um, this Cuomo guy? Like, I mean, he said no, but but some people have said like he would have had a chance if he, he could have made a late run. Well, Americans like to pick people today that they think would have a chance. Andrew Cuomo, it's it's interesting to watch. Trump gets on TV and he says something, and Andrew Cuomo later on says exactly the same thing, and then you watch the media coverage of Trump, and they're like, what an idiot. And then you watch the media coverage of Cuomo, and they're like, we love him. Oh, he's the best. So, like, I, I mean, Cuomo is the governor of New York. It's a big state. Uh He's a very well-known person. He has absolutely no name recognition. Um, I think that that's going to come and bite the Dems in the ass. Uh, They've moved their convention to August, so literally they only have two months to to campaign. So this is going to get really weird very quickly. Yeah. I think it's going to be a weird election. It's like the lockdown election. Yeah, and and I think uh, I think that you know Trump is trying to prevent this from going to like an all mail in ballot election. Uh, I think you know my personal opinion is that he's right to do that. I don't think I I, I think that the level of cheating in elections is very high. Um, I think that there's a lot of people that would tell you that I'm wrong, and I think that they're wrong. So is there anything in the Constitution that allows the election to be postponed for a year? Uh, no. So it no, has it, to the, happen. The election happens, I mean, it, it, I, I guess, yeah. Fuck, so at a time of social um, distancing, you've got to have a, a, a general election. I mean, yeah. I, I think, it, I, I mean, it, without, well, without, I, without Corona, I, I, my assumption was it was a slam dunk for Trump to get re-elected. Do you think he's under any threat? I mean, not, it doesn't feel like he's under threat from Biden himself. It feels like he's under well, threat from really, Corona. I think it really depends on 
whether the nation blames him for the situation of the nation and if things get worse, if we can blame him or if things get better and uh, he gets people back to work with very little effect. Like if Corona doesn't see a second wave in the United States. I mean, this is the thing about a lot of these RNA viruses. Like if you look SARS or MERS, they burned themselves out. That's pretty common for a lot of these viruses. They're highly mutagenic. And what happens is they mutate to a point where they just aren't, they're not, effective anymore right they aren't they aren't valid viruses they aren't doing much um and there are reports even that corona has like got some new uh, mutations in certain areas and it's becoming milder and milder and milder and dumbass virus you know i wouldn't yeah and i wouldn't be surprised i mean there there are cases like the spanish flu is a good example where it kind of had a first round of things and then it i think it was in kansas uh, on an army base that it started to like that the first major problematic mutation happened and then it went back around the world and killed a bunch of people uh, in the fall. And so that that can happen. That's pretty rare, I think, with a lot of these uh, a lot of these RNA viruses. Usually they just kind of mutate themselves out of existence. And so we'll see. I mean, there's this is a SARS virus, a SARS, you know, the SARS-CoV-2, I think, is like the official scientific uh, designator. But my hope is my hope is that we don't see a resurgence in the fall. But there is a lot of like people who believe that that we will if this thing dissipates a little bit in the summer. But I think that we're going to be at the latest kind of out of this mid-May. And uh, and if we can get back to work, I think that Americans will appreciate that he didn't take too much. I think they'll appreciate that he did everything he could not to just give bails outs uh, to big businesses and banks. Like a lot of these bailouts that he's proposed have been like small business bailouts and bailouts to individuals. Um, and I think that those things are going to endear him to the American public, particularly like minority populations, you know, who maybe a black guy who owns a barbershop is able to, you know, remain in business because he got a, a literal check from the government that is a loan, but at a very low percent, and a lot of it will be forgivable. Signed by and Donald I think that's Trump. That's going to be high. Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, like I think he's right to demand. <laughs> Dude, I think <laughs> it I, seems. I think his. I think his signature will be on the vaccine bottle. Oh yeah, I, I think that he's going to call it Trump scene or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> All right, listen, like, Trump liquid. What, what fucking time is it there? Uh, 5.46. Were you up already or have you not been to bed? Uh, it doesn't matter. I don't sleep. <laughs> All right, listen, look, I, I can't leave you without talking about Bitcoin. Are you, do you even keep an eye oh, yeah. watch on Bitcoin? Where, where are you at with it? I'd- yeah, yeah, I, I watch Bitcoin stuff. Um, You know, less than I used to. It's, it's funny because, like, I think that what happened with Bitcoin is uh, Bitcoin has always been very fun to watch, but the news is a little bit spaced out and gapped, right? Uh, and I think you probably realize this with the show. Like back in the day, the idiots that you could have interviewed were hilarious. Like th- again, that was the Bitcoin uncensored thing. We could have a scammer a week on, and it was just a blast because there was just a new scam every week, and and people didn't know what blockchains did, so they'd be proposing new things, and it was just hilarious. It was it was a great time. As time as things have gone on, Bitcoin has sort of gained more and more market share. These factional, the, the sort of factionalism, uh, the crazy factionalism still exists, <coughs> but like mostly you're just talking to people that are kind of dumb and don't know what blockchains do they're not trying to scam anyone they just really like bsv or they just really like bch or something like that and it's a to me a lot of the discussions have gotten very uninteresting 
and I enjoy just kind of, you know, I enjoy the higher level Bitcoin stuff. Um, Sean, uh, one of my co-hosts on Junseth's World, he's started like uh, the Florida um, sort of Socratic Bitcoin group, um, which was, you know, it, originally it started up in, in New York. They have uh, sort of a template for it and he mm-hmm. started it down here. And it's just more of, it's it's less the... Bitcoin uncensored way and it's more of a just Socratic discussion about Bitcoin and information and it's very highly technical and I I think that that is probably I mean for me that's an enjoyable thing to be around and to listen to and um, I admire the people that are sort of the technocrats of Bitcoin I've always been sort of a sociologist of Bitcoin and uh, I think there was a world for that and I'm glad that I think I I think that we captured the most fun part uh, of the development of a new uh, of a new space it was a, a lot of fun to watch and it's just not like that anymore nowadays it's more technocratic and a lot of the projects that existed previously like ethereum and tron and everything else you know factum a lot of the a lot of the stupid projects that existed are slowly disappearing and you know like factum i guess announced that they're probably not going to be able to be a going concern anymore which if you go back to bitcoin uncensored this is exactly what we predicted and uh and i think that that's just i think that that's going to start happening we're going to start seeing a lot of these stupid projects fail and uh a lot of these idiotic blockchain ideas like ethereum are probably going to go you know the way of the dinosaur slowly i don't know what you think of them um but well, it's hard to but me I to judge them because I, I can't, like, I just, I say it over and over again, just the, the technicals go over my head. Like, I understand the basics of what a blockchain does. I understand uh, the security model. I understand mining. Uh, look, I get all these things to a certain level. I can explain the basics, but to really fully technically understand, I just don't. I'm a creative, right? I, yeah. I I can and I think that's fair. I can look at a Picasso and and or a Rothko <laughs> and appreciate the beauty in in modern art in the and, CIA art. Sorry, in the CIA art. Yeah, the CIA art. Look, I can do it, uh, and uh, but I and I can sit and I can come up with marketing campaigns and I can come up with creative titles. I am just a creative. I'm not a technical person. But, like, I've seen enough and I've spoke to enough people to know that, like, Bitcoin, you know, I don't even refer to Bitcoin as uh, will it survive. Everything has a timeline, right? Its timeline so far is 11 years. It's not going away in the next probably month, two months, year, three years. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure... It's here for for whatever its lifespan is until something better comes along. Right, I think that's fair. And then I look at something like Ethereum, and I'm like, I I I, I so don't understand it at a technical level, when and and I so don't understand the use case and the I always talk about. So one of the things I've always done right, which I know fucks people off, but like I don't really use my node. I talk about nodes being a pain in the ass. I talk about usability. I talk about the real world people like i make my show for like the common man i don't make it for somebody who can verify their own code and compile their own uh, code and i don't make right. it for those because those people are few and far between and in doing so i it, it helps me be as objective as i can about bitcoin but i but i still understand bitcoin enough to think this is worthwhile there's nothing else that does that for me apart from stable coins i think there's a there's a, certainly a significant and obvious use for for us dollar uh, peg stable coins 
and and the the ability to flow between one and the other. I don't have I don't know about the long term viability of Ethereum because I don't understand it. Some people say it's fucked. It's still here after a few years. Maybe it'll still be here in five, ten years. I don't know. What I do know well, they're, is they're deleting the whole chain and building two point oh. Right? Yeah, well, forever. So. <laughs> but what I know is, I Bitcoin has value to me. It does some things that I can't do elsewhere. It would be great if there was a uh, dollar peg stable coin I trusted as much as Bitcoin. Because do you know what? Right now, I've got savings, but actually, I don't want to have it all in cash in my bank. It'd be quite nice to have some of that on a blockchain. Some USD on a blockchain that I can do with what I want, when I want, that is uncensorable. Now, I may be asking for too much. Everything else, I'm just kind of like, huh? I, I just... I don't get it enough. That's what I mean. That's one of the reasons I ended up focusing on Bitcoin because I didn't get it enough. But what I think I do get is I think I understand people. I understand like my friends, and I understand people who are who aren't anarcho capitalists who are looking at Bitcoin and what it means to them. And, and that's why I, I always think like I've had use in terms of my show. And it doesn't matter whether people right. like it or not. Just go by the downloads. Like if people are listening to it, it's obviously serving a value. It's obviously addressing an audience. If they're more, well, it's a good show. Yeah, I mean, if you're more technical, like I say to people, like if you want the deep technical stuff, definitely go and listen to Marty Bent and Matt O'Dell. They're they're fucking on it. They're on the money. If you want something that's a bit more economic space, go and listen to Stefan Levera. If you want some basic that's a bit more entertaining, listen to mine. Um, and and that that's what I've always tried to do. But Within that, I, I still have this fundamental belief in Bitcoin will survive and everything else just seems kind of nonsense, but no one wants to admit it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I have my reasons for thinking they're all nonsense, but you know, again, like that was the thing, like we, Bitcoin and Censor grew up in a world where um, a lot of that's, I mean, like, I think, I think we started, I'm pretty, I mean, I, I know we did, we started the show long before Ethereum was a thing and we were making fun of it for a long time before the Ethereum chain launched. And, you know, we if you go back and listen to those, you'll hear a lot of the criticisms of exactly why Ethereum failed. Um, we, we knew exactly why it wouldn't work. And now they're releasing a 2.0 and they're pretending like, oh, we always knew that we would have to scale it. Like, no, you can go back and listen to BU and you can know that you didn't know that because we had discussions with you about how this wouldn't work. And you told us that it would. So, you know, there's there's a lot of bullshit projects out there. And I, I thought, that, you know, for me, Bitcoin was always fun because we were in the middle of it. I mean, one coin, uh, that was a blast. All of, I mean, all of this stuff. These are just moments that will never be created again, especially as Bitcoin becomes more of a, like, sort of, uh, I mean, everyone uses the word ossified. I, I don't know that I like the idea of ossified code. The only code I can think of that's ossified is, like, robots.txt, which is a, uh, protocol that nobody really understands or knows unless they're like making websites. Um, I don't think they've made a code change to robots.txt in you know 30 years <laughs> or something. It's just some just an enormous amount of time. But like the idea of ossified code, I don't know about. But the idea of of, of Bitcoin as sort of this ossified financial instrument, the the idea that it would be something as a, in a mainstay like a portfolio, to me. Um, that's that's very interesting. I think that that's a future that we're going to see, and uh, you know, I think there's a lot of questions as to what Bitcoin is, and you, you look at things, uh, you look at like investments, you you try to do things like calculate sharp ratios and volatility and all that stuff. I think that there's going to be a lot of really interesting work over the years as to what Bitcoin is correlated with, uh, how correlated is it with like oil. 
how correlated is it with energy prices? How correlated is it with like the S&P and the overall market? How correlated is it with uh, software or hardware sales of like GPUs and stuff like that? Like how, like what is it, how correlated with, is it with like betting season? Um, these are, these are all really interesting to me and I'm very curious as to what that looks like in the future. Everyone likes to talk about what Bitcoin is today and what it's correlated with today. But the beauty of Bitcoin is, is it's, it's uh, it's sort of like this like tech stock, and it's doing its own thing, and it's got secret uh, secret ambitions that nobody knows about because it it's this weird sort of anarchic cohesion that brings it all together, and we don't know what the next stage for Bitcoin is because some person is going to create something or do something with it that surprises all of us, and that's kind of what's cool about it. To me, it's sort of like oil. We didn't know that oil was going to be the thing that allowed us to synthesize you know, gasoline and diesel and move cars down the road all the time, but in, in its original discovery, it was you know an Indian salve that they would like put on wounds <laughs> in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and... Uh, but what do you, and, what do you I, think I, its role is? Because there are there are definitely different opinions. Some people just see it as a, I was chatting to Andreas the other day. Like he was talking about there's been this movement for Bitcoin to take down central banks, but he said he likes the idea of um, banking the unbanked. The fact that people have a, a form of money they can use, which is peer to peer censorship resistant, seizure resistant. He talks about that. And look, the, the, I think there's a symbiotic relationship between. Uh, taken down the central banks and um, having censorship resistant money but there is definitely there's like a a growing voice of anti-state bitcoin is the solution uh hyper bitcoinization the the bitcoin standard your your mate safedine my friend safedine idiot uh um this is this is the thing this is the thing about libertarianism that like gets me there's a, again this idea that like the world's going to collapse and the state of the world will be very different and all of a sudden all the libertarians will emerge with their golden hand you know and, and they're they're the Silas Marners who hoarded the gold and 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 you know come out emerge the, the great wealthy man and it's it, it's an interesting it's an interesting thesis but that's never how the world has worked fiat money is an asset and you can use it. And Bitcoin is different than fiat money. And I don't see why there's a world where they can't both exist, you know, coexist. I think they can exist together. I think that they, they serve somewhat different purposes. Uh, Bitcoin is highly volatile. Will it be like that always? I mean, maybe. We've talked about it. The, the, you know, it's, it's been talked about as digital gold. Uh, gold isn't exactly a very stable currency. Uh, gold is highly volatile. And this idea of like, well, you know, not everyone is going to use it. Well, like not everybody buys gold and yet gold has a multi-billion dollar market cap. So, I mean, this idea of it banking the unbanked, it's a cute idea, but I think that probably cell phone minutes are better for banking the unbanked in places like Africa. I think that they have a much better model uh, than, you know, Bitcoin itself. Like there are, there are all sorts of things of value. And I think the thing that, that Bitcoiners don't realize, and this is what I, I mean, uh, I come from it from a very different perspective than Andreas. Andreas has a, a lot of opinions, I think, about the way the world ought to look. I don't ever look at the way the world ought to look. I try to look at the way the world does look. There's a lot of things of value that can be exchanged. Um, you know, Fortnite bucks, cell phone minutes, uh, cars and Rocket League, um, all sorts of things. And some of them make really good money for short periods of time. 
Uh, crates in video games are a great example of that. And some of them uh, make bad money for long periods of time. And some are proving out that they're really excellent at, you know, maybe being held by people that don't necessarily need bank accounts. So they're, you know, early in Bitcoin's history. We talked about how African nations kind of skipped the whole bank thing and they have banks on their phones. And, you know, maybe there's a world in which we kind of like delete banks, but I just don't see it. And the other thing is this, banks don't hold cash. That's not their primary job. Banks hold whatever it is that you want them to hold. Banks are really good at holding assets. And, uh, and I've, I've always thought it interesting that Bitcoiners think that everybody wants to hold their own money. Nobody wants to hold their money. Holding your value is really, really hard. It's like holding a bomb. It's going to explode. Somebody will take it. Um, and we need mechanisms of things like insurance. And we need mechanisms of things like security. And uh, you, you want, uh, I think most people want a level of abstraction in holding their own money so that they, they are not the responsible party for when it gets lost. Don't you think um, there's a trade-off the there? Like, stuff? for example, I, have save, I haven't put all my money in Bitcoin. I've got savings in the bank. And I quite like that that's insured to some extent. But at the same time, I know during a crisis that the government can steal it if they really want. We've seen that in Europe in, in recent times, in the last Greece, 15 yeah. years, Greece and Cyprus. So Ukraine, so Greece. I mean, yeah. it's, it's historical that but we, countries do this. But I can have some in Bitcoin. And if I want, I can have some gold under the mattress. I, I personally think it's prudent to have a mix. So I, I don't think I don't think it's either or, and I think there are some people who are happy to have a mix, and they understand the value of having a mix of all of them. But but yeah. but more this kind of like, so you don't buy into at all this concept of hyper Bitcoinization, separation of money and state, and we're all self sovereign. Well, it's just dumb. Like nobody wants self sovereignty. Like very few people want it. Some do. The people that say, no, they don't. They say they want it. Like, in, again, back to Bitcoin Uncensored, we had a number of principles, and I think it was number three is you don't want that. And the idea is that people say they want things all the time that they don't really want. And I mean, a good example, someone looks at like uh, a yacht and says, God, I would love to have a yacht. And you're like, oh, you want a crew of eight? You want to pay eight salaries? You want to pay that yacht is $10 million? You want to pay a million and a half dollars a year in maintenance? You want to, uh, you know, spend uh, $400 an hour on gas? And No, 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 I don't want that. I want a yacht. Like, that's what a yacht is. That's what that is. So, like, there's a lot of things that people say they want, but that they don't want. Um, and I think that those are things that people say they want, but that they don't really want. And they're cute ideas. Um, self-sovereignty, I mean, like, the, you, the, the question has to be, to what degree are you going to be self-sovereign? Because if you're self-sovereign, again, we're back to the Wuhan uh, wet markets. Like, how long before I have to shoot you because you can't, you can't because you're a guy who really wants to eat pangolins? Right. And that's putting me at risk because like you're going to get coronavirus like now I have to shoot you um, and because I'm self-sovereign and, and you're a, an, an externality risk to me. So like it's just a fake idea. There's a few people who actually might be capable of self-sovereignty. But like a, a lot of my perspective changed in Bitcoin. Jameson Lopp. As I, I believe watched, Jameson Lopp is self-sovereign. Jameson Lopp can be self-sovereign. Yeah. But he probably... He'll be he'll be self sovereign in a world where like nobody knows he is except him. Well, um, do you know what? When the <laughs> shit hits the fan, I I will pay to to work inside his his compound. Yeah, I'm with you, James. I'm with you on Jameson, that. That's, that's exactly how much right. I want to know up front if shit hits the fan, how much do I have to pay? How much Bitcoin rent do I have to pay yeah, to live behind Jameson you and your gun? Every big, 
<laughs> Jameson Lop is every Bitcoiner's bug out strategy. Yeah, I'll, I'll go in. I'll go in the Jameson Lop Citadel. It might be a Citadel with ten people. I like that. I'll be in his militia. Like, let, yeah, we'll we'll do that. Just, we all serve Jameson. He's our king. Yeah, like there's some but, shit. You know, there's some shit Jameson needs to do. Like he's he's got to he's got to look after the guns and the weapons and set up all the traps. But someone's gonna need to like mow. Clean someone's gonna need to mow his lawn, right? And someone's gonna need to like take I'll out do the it. trash. No, I'll I, mow his lawn if dude, I get the protection. Dude, from I will fucking pay for that shit. I believe that dude. You can be is self sovereign. You can be his butt boy. Yeah, I, I believe that guy is self-sovereign, and I also believe he is principled, and I also believe he's responsible. Like, he doesn't want war, but he will defend himself. He's not like some fucking crazy lunatic. That guy... Do you know Do you know the story, like, the first time I met him? No. The first time I shot a gun. Oh. <laughs> is he yeah, the one so that I, showed you guns? Is that... So I made my first podcast episode like two and a half years ago and I saw this picture of the, I've told this story a few times, but there's, I saw this picture of this guy on the internet with like make Bitcoin great again hat with an AR-15 yeah. or something. I was like, who the fuck is this guy? So I wrote to him and I was like, uh, I've just launched a podcast. Can I come and interview you? And he was like, yeah. I was like, I mean, can I come to you from the UK and, and also will you take me to shoot a gun because I've never shot a gun? He was like, yeah. So I turned up his house. He had like all these fucking guns out that he was cleaning. Bear in mind, I've What's never touched a gun. And Just he had kidding. them all, and he had, and then he took me to this range to go shooting. Itself, an amazing experience. I always compare it to bowling. I was like, this is just like, yep, this is like people going bowling in the UK. You've got a lane each. There's a couple. There's a family. There's two buddies, and rather than throwing a bowl down the alley, you're shooting a gun. And that was the first Real time I fast. shot a gun. I I shot like four different guns. It scared the shit out of me. I did not. The te- the films never ever ever put across how fucking powerful they are when you actually do it. And it, it blew me away, but but yeah. So like, I'm I'm Team Lop. I'm, I'm gonna hide behind Lop. Lop, if you ever listen to this, I'm I'm in. I'll bet you that you realized how. Uh, I'll, I'll bet you Jameson has an utter respect for guns that you never saw anybody have for any object. Yeah, like that's that's yeah. every American who has guns. By the way, that's that's what's funny. Like I, I don't think people realize. Um, people kind of worship the respect of the firearm because it is such an instrument of power. And I think Americans realize that. And, and that's, you know, that's, I think that you, you can't understand the fight for firearms until you've watched that. Well, even in the, even in the range, when we're outside looking at the guns, I was chatting to this girl who worked behind the counter and I was saying, look, this is the first time I shot guns. And she was like, oh, I've had them around me my whole life. I was like, oh, right, so you have guns at home. She's like, I've got 43 guns. I was like, what? She said, yeah, I've got 43 guns at home. I was like, that's fucking insane. And then she'll show me one, and I picked one up. And even though they're, like, all on the display and they're all, you know, unarmed, I picked it up and just slightly held it up, and she quickly smashed my arm down. She's like, keep it down, keep it pointed down, even though they knew it wasn't loaded, like the full principles. And I came away from that with a very different understanding and respect for guns. Americans treat every gun as if it's loaded, if if they're good at yeah. guns. Like every gun is loaded, every gun will kill you. It doesn't matter if it's loaded or not, you treat it like it's loaded. And yeah. that respect is like a very different thing. And that's, that's the, why the, like, it misses. But the problem happens when it gets day. in the hands of someone who's uh, psychotic, mental, angry, and just doesn't give a fuck. That's that's the only problem. I think it's a it's a such a small percentage of people that create such a media friendly event but then but then you have the other side of it where it, and, and it's not a lie and you know I, I don't like getting stuck in rhetoric because I think generally rhetoric tends to be untrue but if you had a bunch of armed people around a crazy person who with a gun he would be done you might he might get one or two people but it would be as effective as like going around with a knife 
Yeah, but it's hard. It's hard to argue with the 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 correlation between uh, gun deaths in the U.S. and other countries. I'm just saying you have to uh, you have to debate and be fair about the trade-off. This is the trade-off. This is what we're yes. accepting. Well, that's, know, that's, and, that's and, I think, and, what most Americans realize. And, and I think, like, these urbanites who dislike guns, I mean, it's their prerogative. But I think they, the, the other trade-off is that, like, you know, you're a woman walking down the street and you can't, you just cannot defend yourself. Like, the, the, this is the reality. The guns, guns are the great equalizer. If somebody comes to do something to you, it doesn't matter if you're fat, thin, tall, short. Guns are the great equalizer. And if you're a better shot than the other guy, you win. And not every uh, time. Not if they walk well, up behind you and shoot you in the head. Correct. That, that's yeah, the like you, and look, sure, we have sure we, we have a f- we have a massive knife crime. We talked about it earlier in, in the UK. Massive. Although it just came up while we're doing this session, like a news alert on my phone. Listen to this. This is hilarious. Uh, stabbings have stopped. Gang rivalries on hold amid coronavirus lockdown. There's well, an argument nice for a lockdown. That's like that's like yeah, that's like in the Philippines. Whenever there's a Pacquiao match, all the rebels stop protesting and they 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 they, they put aside their warring to go watch the Pacquiao fight. Um, which you know, it's it's very funny the the way that people work. But yeah, okay, so stabbings have stopped. I I gotta say, I'm I'm way more afraid of walking through the UK and getting stabbed by like you know some you know butterfly knife than I am walking through the United States. Yeah, but and that's because you're seeing external media. I'm not I'm not worried about being stabbed in London because I live here and I know I know what goes on and what goes on where. Well, you like, haven't we embraced know, your inner you haven't embraced we, your inner Bitcoin and gone into the shady parts of London. Well, we we know our we know our safe zones in our <laughs> in our local areas, but but yeah. Anyway, so to take us back, so yeah, Jameson Lop, um, I asked first. I asked before Jun Seth. So if you need someone to take your trash out during the apocalypse. And I'll do it, Jameson. I'll comb your beard. <laughs> so, but, so you, so you don't believe in you don't believe in the that with Bitcoin we can have this separation of money and state and this perfect idealizing. You don't I buy into the Bitcoin standard because a lot of people. Let's be honest. I, I've read the book. I like the book. Uh, I like aspects of the book, not all of it. I recommend people read it. Uh, I think, but but you don't believe in that can we can live on a Bitcoin standard. Well, I don't think that I don't think that any kind of standard makes any sense. I mean, money is a representation of sort of like the social value behind it in some ways, right? Like, um, I think I think understanding like like the gold standard or a silver standard, if you really understand it, you understand why it's unfeasible. And the reason it's unfeasible is because there's not enough gold or silver in the world to represent all of the value that exists in the world. Like, let's but say doesn't that, that just every... force the price of the gold up so it can do that? No, because let's say you have a million pounds of gold and every year you have a little bit more uh, you know, value created in the world. You don't have more gold created in the world to like, match that value. Like, no, but the gold, so the gonna... gold just becomes more expensive to buy. Well, what's the point? Then what's the difference between that and paper? Now you're getting into economics. There'll be that's, but that's, that's safe, safe Dean like, would be much better here to argue this with well, you. Well, he me. wouldn't be because he doesn't have any idea. Like th- th- it's such a dumb argument. Like there is the, the 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 reason that we have fiat is that it, it allows the state to as a mechanism to basically give you something that is a system of IOUs. And you can trade that for anything you want, including gold. So, I mean, that's kind of my point. Is like the the reason that the reason that Americans, the reason that Safe Dean or any of these others are able to hold Bitcoin is is a, is the fact that they were given this thing that they say has no value, which is fiat, which they then used to purchase some quantity of Bitcoin in exchange for that fiat. And I think that like 
I think the most dangerous uh, enemy of fiat, and I think fiat's a very important thing, by the way, and the reason I think it's important is because of the anonymity of exchanging bills. I think that's a very important part of the world, and I think that paper makes that really simple to do. Um, I think that, that I think that's a good world. And I think the, the, the freedom to do things with your money, like buy Bitcoin or create Bitcoin or buy computers or buy gold or silver, whatever you want to do, I think that that's a really cool thing. And fiat is the mechanism whereby we have made uh, it been able to have a free economy where people can make those decisions. And we can take that away. I suppose we can force people to start using Bitcoin. Or we can say, you know what? The state mechanism of fiat exists, and that's good. And Bitcoin also exists. And what you can do with your state fiat is that you can buy a little Bitcoin if you want to hedge against something that you think is going to happen in the future. I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to hedge. I think it's reasonable to have some gold or silver uh, or Bitcoin or whatever you want in your house. I think that those hedges are important. I think coronavirus uh, takes the mask off of these people who are you know so-called preppers. I think that that prepping a little bit is a, is a good idea and you can diversify your preps uh, and I think everyone should diversify everything. I think that diversification takes a lot of the risk out of things. So if you had a little gold, a little silver, a little Bitcoin, you would uh, you would not be stuck with the one metal that nobody is willing to exchange things for. Um, I don't know, maybe some bronze piping that you carry around with you just in case you, uh, you need or copper that you need to exchange. I think that's all totally fine. Having raw metals, they're useful metals. Um, gold is not particularly useful except as a, a medium of exchange, perhaps. It's not, or like putting in your mouth is like teeth. But I think that that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. What I don't think is necessarily reasonable is thinking that the entire economy is going to go away and then Bitcoin will be there to replace it. It is, again, in line with like this libertarian dream that like sort of the chaff falls away and emerges from it like... Uh, this this Bitcoin dream where every, the whole world turns to Bitcoin as the economies all collapse one by one and here we emerge and Bitcoin is the answer and it just doesn't work like that like the world kind of is, is a much more incremental place where today it's this way and tomorrow it's going to be this way plus one and a, a year from now it's going to be this way plus 365 days and it's going to look a lot like today but when you have a hundred years of that it's going to look a lot different you know, when you have uh, this day plus 100 years, uh, it looks a lot different. But in a small scope, it doesn't. And 100 years from now, I'm willing to bet that the world will look very different, but that currencies will still exist. And there's going to be a world that has a semblance of the old world because you're going to be able to trace the old world all the way to the new one. And I don't think involved in that is going to be like the entire world collapses and we end up in like a shadow runner kind of uh, world where people are doing like, you know, using cred sticks to, to, to run errands for gangs in the hood. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily the world we end up in. Maybe it is this like post-apocalyptic sort of world, but I think it's going to look a lot like it does today. Plus maybe some flying cars. So why do you think then there's this such a strong kind of movement around this hyper-Bitcoinization and the separation of money and state. And there's such a belief that you can have a Bitcoin standard. And it's it's not really challenged that much, to be honest. And when, when well, it's, not challenged be, it's not challenged because it's said by a bunch of people who agree with each other. Like, this is what an echo chamber looks like, right? You have people, I don't you know, Francis Pouliot or, you know, the people that I like, but who I think are very wrong about sort of, you know, Tra Trace Mayer, um, who who just dream of a world in which, you know, Bitcoin is is sort of the only thing that exists. And, you know, who's going to come and tell them that they're wrong? 
like first of all like legitimate economists who come around are going to look at them and laugh and they're just not going to engage with them um other misons are going to completely agree with them uh it's it's really more of a religion in that sense like they're in the pews and like you know no one's going to tell them they're wrong while they're at church uh and they're always at church so it is what it is, and I just don't think it's worth arguing because they're arguing about something like that they claim is going to happen in the future, but their crystal ball is as cloudy as mine. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in any more than I know what's going to happen, other than the fact that they think that they have, they've done this thing where, that humans do, which is extrapolated to infinity. And it's, uh, you have this chart, and you put in your Excel chart, and then you, you do an X squared formula, and you find out it does this. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, from here to a billion. And they look at inflation, right? And they're saying, oh, well, inflation goes up at, on average, 3% per year. And um, if inflation is, is going up at 3% per year, then what is that? It's going to my, my money is going to be worth half of what it's worth in 24 years. And if we do that again and again and again, eventually $100 is going to be worth what $1 is today very quickly. And that's, you know, you can't live in a world like that. Meanwhile, you look at things like uh, incomes and average income goes up pretty much exactly with inflation. It actually slightly exceeds it. Average home prices go up with inflation. Average everything, uh, CPI, you know, all this stuff, like, uh, in the meantime, uh, iPhones are invented and everyone spends $900 on a phone uh, in a world where apparently we can't afford anything because all of our the value of our money is inflated away. When I was a kid, you had one phone per family. You would call Michael's mom, Jeannie, and you would say, hey, Jeannie, can I speak to Michael? And she would give Michael the phone. And then, uh, and then you know, she would go downstairs and have the other phone. And when she needed it, she'd be like, she'd pick up the downstairs phone and say, Michael, I need the phone. Get off, you know. And Did you have and those phones where you had to, like, spin the dial? Uh, I mean, you could get them. That's what I mean, we had. That was our first yeah, phone. Yeah. And you had to spin each fucking number. And then, like, if you got wrong halfway through, you'd have to start all over again. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, like, I mean, but what's interesting about that, by the way, is uh, is those phones are of higher quality than our cell phones, right? Those are analog phones. And if you, if you grab a phone from 1960, in terms of the quality of the listening, it's as good as a phone from the 90s. And in the meantime, now we have this world where we pay about 100 times more per phone. Every single family has uh, a phone, and every single person in the family has a phone, and they have a plan on every single one of those phones, and they pay $150 a month instead of 70 for the phone on the wall. And in order to schedule a meeting, you have to confirm with the person three minutes before the meeting actually happens or they just won't bother to show up. Whereas when I was a kid, you would schedule something at 3 p.m. and you would just be there at 3 p.m., right? So like these are these, this is like the, the way the world has evolved and it's a new world and it's improving all the time. The world is cons- constantly getting better. And... I mean, if you just if you want to understand how quickly it's getting better, just think of the value that's in the market. Like the market doubles every eight-ish years, about seven and a half to eight years. So, I mean, I would say that maybe uh, it, you might be able to give you know pull some metric from that and say the world's doubling in improvements every eight years. And I think that that's a that's a pretty cool world that's existing under fiat. And I don't see that turning into this like apocalyptic nightmare that all of these people think is coming. I think that it's just going to continue to improve and there will be times where it's worse and there will be genocides and there will be wars all throughout this. And in the meantime, the world will just kind of continue to tick on and uh, we'll end up with a world that looks very similar to this, but with also some Bitcoin and some cool things that Bitcoin does fucking statist yeah I, i've been accused of it for a while we were getting accused of being spooks which i always loved 
<laughs> so what 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 areas of Bitcoin do you think aren't being debated that should be debated? And like I think this is healthy to debate. And I know I know the responses that I'm going to get. I know I'm going to maybe lose some listeners. I know a couple of Bitcoin is going to write to me and go, you're fucking full of shit. And there's yeah. other people going to say, oh, you <laughs> you were so close. You were going in the right direction and now you're heading in the wrong direction. And and uh, like I know all the criticisms that will come in. And then I know I'll get all the private messages, the private DMs and the private emails and say, yeah, I kind of agree with that. I'm not going to post it publicly, but I've got the same concerns with you. Like what are, the, what are areas of healthy debate do you think are needed around Bitcoin? Well, I think I think that the question of what an unbanked person is is an interesting one. I would like to hear what Andreas believes an unbanked person is. I assume that Andreas believes an unbanked person is like a single mom who just can't get a bank account. But like I tend to view unbanked people for the most part as like drug dealers. And I, I if if we go with my definition of what unbanked is, I agree with Andreas as to what Bitcoin's for. I think that Bitcoin is dissident value. I think it's value for dissidents. People that are, you know, generally locked out of economies. Um, I think it's a really and, and and that can mean different things in different places, right? In North Korea that might mean that like uh, you're a dissident because you speak up against the state and you agree with American values, right? Um, in America, that might mean that you're a drug dealer. Uh, so I think it's dissident money. I think that it's uh, it's the it's cool because it holds value. It has a value, and I think that like it's probably going to be the kind of thing that allows people to move uh, large amounts of value in ways that you know previously were done by you know black diamond smugglers. So I think it has a lot of really neat uses. I think the fact that you can hold uh, enough Bitcoin on you know, a tiny little chip, um, as much Bitcoin as you want, and a tiny little chip, whereas like a diamond, you know, has, takes up space and you can only have so much is, is an amazing feature of Bitcoin. Um, and I think that I think that that's probably its principal use. I think that gambling is uh, going to continue to probably use Bitcoin. I think that there's going to be some really fun actual smart contract stuff that we're going to see uh, using Bitcoin. You know, like as as we move forward, I think that banks are going to start using Bitcoin in some really fun ways. Uh, I mean. I think that I think the idea of a stablecoin uh, type instrument issued by a bank. I mean, if you think about the way the banking system works, um, when you have your money in like a Wells Fargo, and this is this is kind of old Bitcoin discussion, you're not holding your money isn't actually in Wells Fargo. What you have is a Wells Fargo IOU, right? And this is like the libertarian obsession with fractional banking. You don't have an actual dollar in there. You might have like. 10% of a dollar. And when you go to Bank of America, uh, your balance can be reified by you taking that money out of the bank, right? Like you actually get that cash. But you don't, when it's in there, it's more of like a Heisenberg dollar. It, it may or may not exist. As, as long as there's not a run on that bank, your money does exist in that bank. Right. So like there's there is precedent for like a bank to possibly do some sort of like stable coin. Although I think most people would say that like that that abdicates a lot of like government responsibility. Um, but, you know, you could probably do a stable coin on Bitcoin, uh, like a tether type thing that does that. And you could probably bank the unbanked rather cheaply that way, you know, giving them fiat and uh, essentially IOUs from the bank that you have with the ability to kind of do the tracking that banks need to do. I don't know. Um, but there's well, a dude, lot of really that, cool that uses. That was my experience in Venezuela in that when I went there, you get the reality by visiting a place that the majority of people are living under $5 a month. There is absolutely no possible use for Bitcoin for people living on $5 a month 
they're not going to move to a new volatile currency with high transaction relative high transaction costs you know if you if if every transaction cost even costs like 10 cents that's too expensive for somebody living on five dollars a month um so they're not going to move to to that they're not going to move to that that currency it's not going to unbank it's not going to uh, 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 bank those unbanked people i met some people in el salvador using lightning and that was cool but i also felt like each of them in their wallet they needed a dollar stable coin as well and they needed the ability to move between their lightning bitcoin and the, the dollar stable coin like freely freely and at low cost because at least at that point they can if they want to save a bit of bitcoin because they believe in the long-term fundamentals of bitcoin cool but day to day if they want to use that money which is money they're earning or spend it then they needed something that was really they needed to put most of it back into the dollar well, well this is this is the thing that is really neat about bitcoin is that you you kind of decentralize the banking infrastructure right so like this is a perfect use for something like coinbase you know like I don't know what the legal, like what the regulations would say about a Coinbase, but real simple. I mean, like a Coinbase like company could be banking people from America and they could be moving things on on a database that essentially makes these off ledger transactions free. Right. And the only reason they're trusted is because they're an American company like those types of things are the kinds of things that are big innovations for company or for people that maybe can't use uh, something that's going to transact at a 10 cent transaction um, you know, fee because because, uh, but they're willing, they're willing to hold their value in something that they can exchange on, uh, you know, a database off ledger, and you know, you're talking small amounts, five, ten dollars, and they're just transferring it between, I don't know, some American company's wallet. And for that, I mean, that's a pretty cool thing that they could be able to do that. And I don't know if that's actually happening now, but the, the innovations that are are capable of happening are the fact that, like, in Silicon Valley, someone can develop something that someone in Venezuela can use. Whereas, like, most products, like most Venezuelans probably can't use necessarily, like, Amazon AWS. But they could use, like, Bitcoin on Ledger, and uh, nobody could do anything about it or off ledger and nobody could really do anything about it and there could be an american company that facilitates that i think like uh i think years ago like catapult or coinapult i think was doing stuff like that mm -hmm. um that kind of thing and you know whatever happened to all that stuff but like i think there's i think that there's a lot of really neat opportunities that can can occur in the future and if if those are the people that like andreas is talking about as the unbanked then you know great more power to you but you need somebody to be stupid and to like take the risk of like maybe doing something illegal like this is the charlie shrimp bet like we all know what bitcoin needed right bitcoin needed a great onboarding uh, tool and charlie shrimp's like i'm an idiot i'll do it and so he like did the thing that we all knew needed to happen and now like everyone looks at him as this great innovator well it wasn't like an innovative idea it was just that he was the guy who was willing to take the risk for which he went to jail for which he also had a lot of money and I think still has a lot of money. So like, um, you know, this is this is the nature of this like innovation. We're talking finance. Uh, money has always been regarded as dirty. It was dirty way back when, you know, the Jews were doing usury uh, or like, you know, considered usurious lending, but that the whole world knew that they needed loan makers and uh, the people that were willing to make the loans um, you know, were sort of ghettoized and they were definitely marginalized, but the world needed loans. 
and and money was like this dirty lucre and money's always been dirty and if you look at like the bitcoin exchangers now like these uh local bitcoin guys Mm -hmm. they're regarded as like these dirty money changers but if you think about it these guys are the innovators these guys are the ones that are willing to take the risk of possibly getting shot or arrested or whatever it is and they're taking on an enormous amount of personal risk basically being a dealer for a new kind of money and it's it's still regarded i mean they are sort of like the the world regards them right now in the way that the world regarded like the jewish money lenders back in the day and it, it's interesting for me because i think that i've never had the opportunity to view money as dirty and i've always wondered what that was like and now i see it with bitcoin we see dirty money we see what that means and it's the people holding this thing they're they're exchanging in this dirty disgusting commodity that heroin users need, you know, that people need and and they're the providers of. And those are the innovators. I, I think that like when all is said and done, the stories that we tell about Bitcoin are going to be about the money changers in the same way that that's sort of the history of old money. I don't think uh, I don't think we can end in a better way there, dude. There's no follow up to that. Yeah. That's a perfect ending. <laughs> oh, wow. Listen, this is going to get some interesting responses. Probably, I'm uh, excited. It's going to probably push uh, push some of the maxis further away from me already. Do some more well, friends. Just so you know, I, I am... Uh, I, 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 we, we like to claim it, but it, it's kind of true. Uh, Vitalik coined the word Bitcoin maximalism after having an argument with me and Chris. So uh, we've always claimed that we are the first maximalists uh, because of that. There have been plenty of people that have been, you know, what maximalists would have been. But, like, I, essentially that article was written after he had debated us uh, in a counterparty chit-chat group um, back in the day. And we were insulting Ethereum. And then the next day that article came out. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, look, well, I am a maximalist in that I only believe in Bitcoin as a blockchain crypto-based currency outside of the use case for some stable coins. So I am a maximalist. I fundamentally am. What I'm not is a... Uh, fully sold Bitcoin standard, anti-state, anarcho-capitalist, um, conspiracy theorist. Although that word is that's kind of an unfair word to use sometimes because it taints the word. It taints the it taints some critical thinking. But you know what I mean. I'm just not one of those maximalists. I'm a Bitcoin maximalist trying to live in the real world, trying to practically navigate everything that's in front of us not living on a theory of a better world of complete free markets uh, and, and and liberty being achievable in the way that they think it is. I'm not saying it can't. I just there is a journey to rationalize some of these ideas and I, I often come up against questions that I'm like, I can't answer this one here and I don't know if this one will be better and I'm not just going to agree with it because it's it's written by Rothbard on the, the Mises Institute website. I just don't think that's how humans behave, so I don't think that will happen. And that's like, in terms of like where I'm trying to explore with the show now, that's where I feel like that's where I want to explore. I really want to question all this stuff because there is a strong narrative about this. It's a very hard narrative to fight against because so many of the the hardcore Bitcoiners are behind it. You know, um, uh, you know the, the the cult of like Safedean's book is that. It is. It is. This is the leading book on Bitcoin. Therefore, it is gospel. I don't 100% agree with it. I think people should read it, but I'm not 100% sold. And I, and I want to explore this. And and in exploring, I'm thinking, ah, oh, fuck, this is going to get people shouting at me, getting people calling me a statist, getting people calling me an idiot. But 
I, I think these are fair things to debate and discuss and that we shouldn't just blindly... F the same reason that I criticised Safer Dean's opinions on modern art, uh, using his economic lens of time preference that modern art is narcissistic and, um, and uh, lazy and easy, I fundamentally disagree with that and I absolutely stand against that. But I still think part of his books are in is interesting. I think... You and I grabbed grabbed onto that part of the book uh, equally as uh, like you, you you we took different approaches to it but both of us found that part very offensive yeah entirely <laughs> offensive I, I found it entirely offensive as somebody who, who loves all forms of art and creativity look there's there's like three i think there's kind of three obvious genres of work which is there to challenge authority in the state i think it's journalism uh, artists and comedians and and when i say like artists you can you don't have to just say canvas paints artists you can throw into their musicians you can throw in rage against the machine or bob dylan or anyone but any form of creativity journalism and comedy is there to challenge assumptions to challenge the state and and a lot of modern art is there a lot of dissident modern art is there to challenge the state banksy going to um palestine and, and and putting a piece of creativity on the wall which divides palestinians and and essentially keeps them in a in a a, a, a state prison is 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 really important and then to to fire an economic lens that says all modern art is narcissistic i think i personally think is, is dangerous i think it's wrong i 100 percent disagree with that and the reason I've, i i'm i'm so anti it, and the reason i'm so vocal against it is because interestingly when i have challenged it i put a tweet out recently when i challenged it and there were a lot of people saying yeah it is narcissistic it is uh, modern art it's garbage and i wonder how many of them would have thought that if there was no bitcoin and no bitcoin standard i wonder if they're now f they're they're convinced by the words in a book it's talking about time preference has taught them that that work isn't of artistic value and i i as, as much as i support his freedom of expression to say that i fundamentally disagree with it. i think it's a moronic statement i think it's if, if highly offensive and i will tell everyone that it, who, who stands by that that i disagree with them i am uh you know it just it fucked it fucked me off yeah it did hey <laughs> so yeah so i disagree with that safer dean and we're no longer friends because we hold different opinions and i am blocked by him on twitter what is that, dude? I've been doing. I've been collecting little Bitcoin art from people, uh, and and buying it. This this is made by some Ukrainian uh, artist, and it's really good. Well, that's the thing. That's one of the ironic things. Almost all Bitcoin art is modern art, right? It's almost all modern art. You don't see any kind of Bitcoin fine art. It doesn't exist. All Bitcoin art is modern art. It's all dissident modern art. So this is, th this therefore, is the, the, the Bitcoiners who are, 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 are like, like uh, what's that guy? Crypto, crypto graffiti, right? He is a modern artist and he is somebody who's spreading the word of Bitcoin through art, but he's doing it through dissident modern art. Well, the, this is the, the secret of, uh, of Bitcoin Uncensored for those who are listeners. I, I always said uh, while we were making it that I, I viewed the project, the entirety of it as, as a modern art project. Um, a postmodern modern art project. You fucking and, lazy narcissist. Well, well, that's the thing. Like the entire the entire point of it was to get people to ask the question: What's up and what's down, and is down down and is up up, and uh, and just to challenge assumptions. 
and that was that was the thing. Like in in Bitcoin Uncensored, we occupied very specific characters, and uh, we. It, it it was a canvas we were painting on, and I think we did a pretty successful job of it. And there, it, and we went for years with people trying to figure out what the fuck was going on, why people liked it. And I think it was Pete Rizzo who finally figured out that it was an art project. And he wrote an article uh, called, I think, The Summer of Bitcoin Uncensored, in which he called it shock art. And I was like, yep, Pete's the first person ever to figure out what's going on. <laughs> But you know that, that I have a very special place in my heart for art and the story of art because I think art is dialectic. I think art is conversational, and I think if if the artist themselves, I mean, like there there is some aspect of art that is, you put it into the world, and the world makes of it uh, whatever it wants. Right? It can misinterpret exactly. or interpret. But like the podcast medium, at least in that case, was interesting because we had some influence on how the world viewed it because every week we got to comment on the way the world was currently viewing it. And it was just a very interesting medium to paint in. And I always viewed it as art. I still view it as art. I think that for me, um, whatever happens in my life, whatever, and this might sound like a stupid statement, but that, that is sort of, uh, that show was for me at least my masterpiece. And I really have always loved that about it. Um, that it sort of has stayed the test of time and that people really got a lot of enjoyment out of it while fully under, well, not fully understanding exactly what I was thinking and what I think we were thinking when we were making it. Because, uh, you know, it's, I think art is commentary. And if, it, if art is not engaged in the discussion, and this is actually what I was saying with you, Rothko is Rothko. And I think you have to understand, like, the, the conversation that... Uh, was implicit in these paintings. What conversation was he having? Which is why I think it's interesting about the CIA stuff with modern art. Because the conversation that art has is very important. And, and generally, I think art for art's sake, like art for the sake of beauty, is fine. But I think that that removes sort of the telos of art, whose purpose is to actually move society and change thinking. And if it's just art for beauty, then you might as well just buy counterfeit art. Exactly, because then it's just about the aesthetics. And if anything, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say, but if it's just art, if it's just for beauty's sake, then it's just about the aesthetics. And that's not what it's about. Like art is emotion. I can go, I can go to Tate Modern, it's my favorite building in London. Um, I can go and I they've got the um I mean, haven't been for a while actually. But they've got the metamorphosis of narcissist. I, I always pronounce it wrong. Those are the those are the discs, the spinning discs. No, no, this is the um, oh, fuck. What's his name? He's got the gallery up in St. Pete's, past Tampa. Is he the one that plays with light? No, you know the the fucking. Why can't I think of his name? Um, it's so funny. The irony of talking about art and art and defending it. I can't even think of one of my favorite artists' names. Uh, Dali, fucking hell, Salvador Dali. You know he's got the. Um, oh, Dali, have you been to his? Yeah. yeah, have you been to his gallery up in St. Pete's? Uh, I have. Yeah, and, and fucking uh, amazing. Well, what's what's cool is that his he's a he's a Florida man, and his curator a number of years ago kind of dumped a bunch of Dali's, so you could actually pick up Dali's here in Florida galleries for fairly cheap. Some really interesting like sketches and stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of Dali down in Florida, which is right, very okay. interesting. Well, this is why I love my kids, right? Because I took them to Disney. We'd always wanted to go to Disney. In two years we went. And about three or four days in, we were bored. 
I was like, do you want to do something different? And they're like, yeah. So we looked up uh, and we found the Dali Museum. I was like, fuck it. It's like awesome. a three-hour drive or whatever it was up through Tampa. And we went and we had the most amazing day out there and they loved it. But what I'm saying is I can go into Tate Modern. They've got the metamorphosis of narcissists there. I think it's still there. They also, at one point, they had Climb Blue, which is the $17 million painting, which is just a blue square. They had the Rothko Room. Um, they may even have Picasso and Monet. I'm not a Picasso fan. I love Rothko. I love the Rothko room. And I just, uh, for me, it's really simple. I just I just go and some things move me. Some things I want to look at for 30 seconds. Some things I, I want to look at for like a few minutes. Some things I want to talk about with my son. Sometimes it's photography. Sometimes it might be, like I'm a massive fan of Ai Weiwei to the point that I've actually got an Ai Weiwei tattoo. I've got an Ai Weiwei tattoo on my leg of a living guy because I love the work he did. The work he did when he went to, after the earthquake in China, I can't remember the region, but all the buildings collapsed because of the bullshit uh, regulations. He went and got all the, they went and stole all the like metal cables and he created like a modern art sculpture out of it, which to me high, like was highly effective in challenging the uh, the 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 loss of life due to the lack of building regulations and corruption in and, and building in China, and that's and to me worth is noting. Important. Ai, Wei, Ai Weiwei at this point is one of the longest living critics of the regime of mm. the CCP, and it's largely because the world views him as a commodity artist, and he if he, were he to disappear, it, it wouldn't be like random guy with a briefcase standing in front of a tank disappearing. It's Ai Weiwei, one of the world's most important artists. And he's important for the very reason that he criticizes the regime. So, you know, like, I think, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting art. And I think that art really needs to be looked at through the lens of its story. And, uh, you know, that's, that's to me, Not like, I look at economics. Yeah, and I look. I think I look at a Paul. Well, the economics is often part of the story, and I think people miss that. And uh, I look at like a Pollock, and you know, it's this deconstructed sort of like just splatter on a on a painting, and, and on a canvas. And I think if you look at that, and you look at that as like an extension of like a Monet, eventually, like you look at the history, like you know, you have these perfect sort of replications of someone's face and then you go into sort of this more abstract time and eventually you get to like a splatter paint right because we had photography so art art had to take on a different thing than capturing a moment like paintings had to take on something different than just being representative of your face or your family and so they had these schools of art that basically abstracted from the original intent and what's interesting is i mean this is something again that i i would regularly talk about uh back in the day every artist wants to to get to the point in their career where they can just shit on a canvas and uh <laughs> that's the joe I, rogan I, it's fuck you art it is and that's the thing like like you want to get to that point where like your shit is worth money and uh and and that's pollock if you look at pollock's early stuff he's a beautiful painter he's actually extremely good at painting and a lot of the a lot of the splatter paint stuff is both performative but also like at the point where he's demonstrated that he has the, the technique 
and the talent to do it, he now finds a sort of a new thing he's able to do with paint and uh, demonstrates another kind of technique that he does that are applied on all sorts of paintings that aren't just splatter paint, but it's a tech, it's a Pollock technique, right? And uh, he evolves the art form of painting in a way that's very interesting and nonsensical, but also evolves. But he does that because he first proves himself as a talented artist. And I think that's the thing that people forget is that before you get to the part where you can shit on the canvas, you have to prove that you are capable of selling your shit because you didn't have to shit on the canvas. And that becomes a statement in itself. And I, you know, anyhow, I just, I think that like, uh, like modern art is very important. And I see that sort of dismissive, like attitude of somebody like, uh, um, like a Seyfedean, and it's not all modern art. I, I think that some modern art is is absolutely stupid. But yeah. art is commentary. So to the extent that it's commentary, the story of it matters. And there's a lot of art that is art for the sake of of beauty, which I think is you know fine. But I don't find that to be compelling. And then there's art that's sort of like pseudo commentary. That's like try. It's like try hard art, where they're trying really hard to make commentary. And it's not that important. Like I saw one once, it looked like a Pollock splatter paint, and the artist told a whole story about how it was New Orleans under the waters of the flood. And I was like, "Go fuck yourself, you fucking asshole!" Like it just wasn't interesting. Like that's not an interesting piece. It didn't comment on anything. A lot of modern art now is like you know pictures of Donald Trump doing weird shit. Uh, you know, there's like an artist who does like the golden toilet. Uh, he did one, I think, to make fun of Trump. And like these these types of things are very stupid. Um, very, very stupid to me. They're not beautiful. They're not interesting. And the commentary is plural. It's very, very sort of stilted attempts at saying something. And it's not something interesting. It's something sort of with mass understanding. So there's, it's it's sort of like, grabbing a bat and hitting society over the head with something that they already think versus like giving nuance and clarity and that's why memes are so important today because memes are exactly that memes are these like small statements these small pithy sort of encapsulated moments that mean something more than you know you, you necessarily would have thought of it's it's like a way to advance the discussion in three words and art has often been a, a means to, to, to advance a discussion in one picture. Um, and our experience with it, again, today is very different than like our experience was with it back in Da Vinci's day. And I, I've thought about this a lot where like you, you're raised nowadays with this like ability to see the Mona Lisa anytime you want. So then when you go see the Mona Lisa, you look at it and you're like, oh, it's a lot smaller than I thought. <laughs> right? That's like that's like that's gonna be your commentary. But back in the day when Da Vinci painted it, people would be in their town and they'd be like, I hear that two hundred miles away there's the most amazing painting anyone has ever seen. I want to see that painting. And you could like people could draw pictures of it. They could like kind of sketch it out what it looks like. They could tell you what it looks like, but you, you never could ever experience it without literally walking 200 miles and, and, and laying your eyes on it. And that's not our experience today. So art means something different. And, uh, and, and to me that like is, it's very important. You know, I guess that's a big divergence from where we were going. Yeah. And you <laughs> know, and I, I keep looking down here cause, uh, my uh, Zoom is about to fill up. I've got four minutes and 52 seconds left, and that well, Zoom's four. And it's happened a couple of times where it's filled during an interview, and it's like, ah, oh, fuck. I think that's Because it doesn't perfect. warn you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad we kind of agree on the art. I mean, for me, it's just like, I, 
I don't want, I just don't like an economic lens used as a way to, for me, it do, it's not a judgment on what is a subjective enjoyment of art. If people, if people have lived their whole life on time preference and judge everything by that, from diet to the economy to art, fine, cool, do, do what you want. It just, it takes the soul out of life for me. It just makes everything kind of, uh, kind of robotic. So I, it's just not for me. Uh, I know I'm not aloning that feeling, but I know there are other people who support that, and that's cool. We all have our uh, can exercise our freedom of speech. Well, yeah, we can, some of us we can write, have, we can write our no, books and say that's what we think, and someone can go on Twitter and say I think that's fucking stupid, and that's what's brilliant about it. And some of us have no taste. <laughs> all right, dude. Listen, that is amazing. <laughs> so uh, officially, the longest show I've ever made, three hours Ooh. and twelve minutes. Loved it. Hope it's enjoyable Always. for everybody. Always love talking to you, dude. It's uh, yeah, it's a real pleasure. Uh, you should Meandering go get some sleep and fun. Oh, I will. I'm gonna go sleep for three hours and wake up and work. All right, man. Well, listen, take care. I'm sure we'll chat again soon. And uh, shout out to Brian Hoffman for saying putting out a tweet that made this happen. And take care, buddy. <laughs> Good night. All right. What did you think of that one? Bit of a beast, right? Yeah, this was completely out of the blue, no planning, but. I do enjoy conversations like this. I'd rather have a conversation where I delve into the kind of depths and narratives around Bitcoin and challenge some of them. I'm not a complete hardcore maximalist. I'm not a full-on anarcho-capitalist. I love lots of the ideas around Bitcoin and what it can do for freedom, and I love lots of the ideas around libertarianism, but I think it's important to challenge these ideas. I really do, and I like making these shows. So listen, I know this will trigger some people, and I'm sorry about that, but look, this is this is what I do, and I, I always want to get into these subjects because not everyone agrees. Some people say, look, Pete, you're just doing a tweet for attention. Like yesterday, I put one out about Ron Paul because I'd been reading up on Ron Paul and watching some videos about him. And whilst he's a libertarian, he also seems to support the idea of a state, but a minimal state, like the minarchist idea. So I put that question out. I wanted to know people's views. And then obviously one person comes in and says, you're doing this for likes and attention for the show. And it's no, I'm not. If I just wanted to get high show downloads, I would just do interviews every week with Churdemister, Rao Powell, and Andreas. They always get crazy numbers. I had an interview with Scott Horton recently, and that had low numbers. But I, I want to challenge these. I want to get into these subjects. Also, look at the responses. They spark debate. There isn't universal agreement on some of these narratives. Not everyone is a hardcore maximalist. Not everyone is a hardcore libertarian. And Bitcoin is there for all. So listen, I'm going to keep making shows like this. I'm going to keep questioning narratives. I'm going to keep going down my various rabbit holes trying to figure out where I end up. And yeah, look, if you've got any questions about it, if, even if you don't agree with me, I do reply to every email. So get in touch and let me know what you think. I'm very cool with that. Happy to talk about anything. Anyway, listen, I hope you're all keeping safe in the lockdown. As I said before, if you are bored, you want to check something else out. I've got a bunch of different interviews on my Defiance podcast, which is defiance.news. Also got a couple of films up there filmed in uh, Colombia and Venezuela. Please do check those out and let me know what you think. Anyway, stay safe, stay healthy, have a great Easter, and I will see you all next week. <laughs>